This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Accompanied by, of course, Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson. On this journey of life, this incredibly fun journey to a new day, Wednesday. Also, Kevin Costner's birthday. Would you guess how old he is without looking at my paper? No idea. If you build it, he will come. Thank you, Kevin. Why, Why are you whispering? I don't know. 62 years young. Did you hear a voice or something? I heard a voice. Oh. Did you hear a voice? No. I guess I was the only one. 62 years young today. Nothing wrong with that. Boy. John Hughes would be how old today? Since you said it before the show started, 67? Exactly. All right. He was the director of Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Breakfast Club, 16 Candles. Those were some seriously powerful movies back then. Still are. Ferris Bueller, hands down the best one, though. My kid thinks Ferris Bueller's the coolest guy ever. I used to think Matthew Broderick was cool, and then I saw him in every other movie that he was in, and he's actually kind of nerdy. He's a nerdy cool. A.A. A. Milne. This is an interesting one that made the list. Guess how old he would be today? No idea. You seem bored, Terry. Yep. 135 years old he'd be. Let's guess people's birthdays. He was the author of Winnie the Pooh. Good on him. You seem like a guy that loved Winnie the Pooh. No, not really. You read him. You. To my kid. You watched sure. him. You know you did. Hey, we got a great show for you today. Love the Winnie the Pooh music. Chelsea Manning. Hold on. Oh, you got that in the news? Of course. It's in the news. Well, I know. I can bring it up. It's my show. Well, go ahead. Do what you want. Commuted the sentence. Was supposed to be there 35 years. She's been in seven. Just got a little reprieve. Yep. From the head honcho. Uh, Tons of crazy stuff going on as the inauguration is coming uh, every minute, every second, just a little bit closer to Trump taking over the presidency. And Obama needs stuff to do. He's showing up at um, press conferences now, just showing up. He's, show, he's showing up at the commutation hearings, I guess. No, he's just commuting sentences left and right. We'll get to all of that fun. Um, plus, also today we'll be talking about you hear about Obamacare, universal coverage, all these ideas going on with health care in America. Well, why why do all these other countries already have some form of universal health care? But the United States is slow, so slow to pick it up. We'll be talking about that today um, with a professor who's been studying the issue. There might be some reasons why America just – we're not on the bandwagon yet. 
So we'll get to all that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Inauguration Day on Friday reports that President-elect Trump's inaugural address being shorter than average. Trump will hit just three inaugural balls. Bill Clinton did 14. And his parade will be a mere 90 minutes, making it among one of the shortest on record, according to a report out of the Washington Post about his, quote, workmanlike inauguration. Yeah, get it done. Let's get busy. As for priorities on day one, which will actually be day four on Monday, as we talked about yesterday, the current thinking among Trump insiders is the order of action is health care repeal first, with a framework for replacing it, tax reform second, using an infrastructure plan as a sweetener to get a win from Democrats, making that third the wall a budget item that goes near the front of the chute. So hmm. it'll go health care, yep. taxes, okay. with a little infrastructure thing to get the Democrats on your side, and then the wall. Wow. That's the thinking. Day. That'll be well those things will start, but it'll you know roll out over the first yeah. one hundred days. Yeah. Well the first ninety six days. The first four days apparently he's just well, it is, I mean, is, is he going to work the weekends? Sure. Is he? He's got the shortest uh, parade ever. Apparently, it's 90 minutes. Get this minutes. thing started. He, he wants to get going. Uh, Edward Snowden, the, he's still hanging out in Russia. Don't know if you knew that. Yeah. He, uh, even if the Kremlin's relationship with the United States is significantly cooler with you know Trump and the, than the White House, uh, Edward Snowden has guaranteed another two years residency in Russia. The Guardian reported Wednesday the Russian Foreign Ministry spokesman wrote on Facebook that Snowden's right to stay in the country has been extended by a couple of years, disputing claims that the National Security Agency whistleblower, whistleblower would, be, would be used as a bargaining chip in Putin-Trump negotiations. Oh, wow. That's weird. So that's not happening, apparently. No. It's going to hang out. Uh, while the Republican Party under President-elect Tr- uh, Trump insistence they want to double down on efforts to repeal Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act is more formally known, is more popular than ever, according to an NBC Wall Street Journal poll. The poll reveals that half of Americans have little to no confidence that the GOP proposals will improve health care coverage. And while favorability ratings of Obama's signature health care legislation continue to differ between the two major parties, the new poll found that 45% of respondents believe the health care law is a good idea. It sounds like about the same number that are Democrats. Right? I mean, hasn't it always been divided fairly evenly? The number hasn't changed in about six years. I was yeah. listening to a report. Yeah. The favor- favorable and unfavorable, just steady. Yeah. So... So at least, hey, something's constant. Something's constant. Airbus Group. They yeah. Make, they make airplanes. I announced today that uh, plans to test an autonomous airborne taxi prototype for one passenger by the end of 2017, according to a report. The aviation giant sees flying taxis as the next logical step in urban transportation and hopes ultimately to develop a network of these vehicles that can be hailed with an app in the style of car sharing services, parts of the uh, company's urban air mobility division. The product's vertical takeoff and landing vehicle would use multiple tilt rotors and take off and land like a helicopter, but fly more like a propeller-driven airplane. Hmm. That's cool. To fly to wherever you need to go. I'm not loving the idea generally. We have a hard time on the ground. Yeah. You're not not big on air. I think the day that we, you know, any Yahoo could just drive an Uber plane. Well, no one's driving. Well. It's autonomous. Right. We have a hard time keeping a bus schedule. Okay. We have a hard time. Just one person, one vehicle. Right. The bus has to follow that, you know. Yeah. And you're in the air. There's not going to be a lot of things flying around at that point. So the, right. 
No congestion. Drones, none of those. Well, there might be a drone or two, but you know, they have lasers. We'll shoot them down. You shoot them down. Lasers. Lasers. That's the solution. You've been watching way too much television. Probably. Wow, Donald Trump. It's happening. It's not. No one's stopping this now. They weren't going to stop it before either. Oh, they've been trying. Oh, yeah, they've been complaining. But it looks like it's. I mean, it's it's progressing to a point where we're two days away and. At 9.30, the 70s music kicks in. <laughs> Donald Trump pulls up in his Disco ball 1970s drops. Jaguar, and it's party time. Mm. Interesting. He's only going to have three inaugural balls. Yes. Clinton had 14. That's what it said. I think we know who likes to party more. Right. Donald just, I guess, wants to really get this thing done. What does he... What's the hurry? Well, there's there's two sides to that. There's either, yeah, he wants to get it done, or there's not a lot of interest. That's the fear. Well, yeah. The fear is he shows up and there's a lot of empty seats. Well, there are empty seats because a bunch of Democrats aren't coming. Did you hear that now, whole thing? Now it's up to 60. Yeah, now, but so he's like, so make sure you turn your tickets back in. Yeah. Because we got tons of people that want those seats. What are you saying? They won't turn their tickets in. No, because that would ruin the protest. They want, it? yeah, they want, they want there to be empty seats. Right? There won't be, will there? I mean, no. won't they just put people in there? No. That's gotta, why there's rumors that on Craigslist there are seats, there are seat filler ads. That's that's what you need. You need somebody, <laughs> which is another, you know, who what, knows what. What are the requirements to be able to fill someone's seat? Can you wear a suit? I guess you need a suit. Yeah, and you need a seat. Yeah, that's all you need. And can you clap at appropriate times? I think uh, members of the MT News team are going to be in those empty yes. seats. In fact, I actually think we are sending Shik Shumway. Shik Shumway, one of our great reporters, to uh, do a little empty news report. Uh-oh. You better not botch it up. Do we have the budget for that or is he paying it? Uh, we have the budget. Okay. Don has well, I think appropriated. We, I think we told him funds. we would reimburse him. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. But I think we told him it would be based on how well he did. Oh, okay. Performance-based reimbursement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because he struggles, you know. According to some, that's how things run in Washington. So seeing as he's going to D.C., pay for play. May as well do pay for play, right? I mean, it's – I worry. We'll find out. I, uh, when do we do the first uh, hit with Schick? Is that Friday or – Yeah. The day of the inauguration. Mm-hmm. Nice. Does he know it's Friday? We'll see. Well, what do you mean we'll see? I hope he knows. I mean, I'd hate for him to make a mistake and then have to pay for his own airfare. Poor, poor guy. George uh, Herbert Walker Bush hospitalized. Shortness of breath. I hope he's all right. Family says he is. He doesn't want to go to the inauguration. He he wasn't going anyways. You sounded like you were trying to preserve your breath with that short description. Sorry. I'll breathe more labored (laughs) next time. (laughs) If If you could breathe in a more labored way, that would be fantastic. Yes. So Obama commutes Chelsea Manning. Um, Chelsea Manning's sentence. She like had like 400 others too. She turned in 700,000 pages to WikiLeaks, confidential information, right. in prison seven years. Now, is this not – this seems weird because this is the guy that is really mad at Russia for spying and causing all the chaos. Right. And ma- everyone was mad about Hillary's DNC break. Mm-hmm. But 
She's the one that fed WikiLeaks and Julian Assange. Yes. Who said he would turn himself in. If this happened. If this happened. So what? And he says he stands by that. So we'll see what happens. That, did he say that? So he, so we, Julian Assange is, I guess, coming to, uh, coming, to, he, coming to the United he's States. He's experiencing sporadic Wi-Fi. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> he may not know. Yeah. Wow. I mean. We'll find out exactly what his thinking was as President Obama has his last press conference later today. He also apparently commuted the sentence of uh, James Cartwright, yes. General James Cartwright. He was going to be sentenced yesterday, yeah. I believe, and they commuted his sentence that way. Which is – he also was – has some – I guess gave confidential information to someone else. So it seems a little – it seems strange. I wonder why he's doing all of this. Yeah. And he'll be asked today as he stands there for usually about an hour. Yeah. A Hillary pardon is next. But you can't pardon a crime that hasn't been charged, can you? No. A pre-pardon. No. Preemptive. Preemptive pardoning. You have to have a crime to be pardoned, so. But she didn't commit a crime. And they haven't charged her yet. Maybe that's a day four item. Yeah, that'll be day four. Oh, don't go there. Is day four Thursday or Monday? I can't. I think day four would be Monday, wouldn't it? But they're calling that day one. Yeah, no. So is day four Thursday? you see how that works? Yeah, totally. So confusing. This whole day one talk is just, I don't know. I don't think it works that way. I think the minute you take the oath of office is day one. Mike Pence at one point made the the point of saying we're going to take the oath and then go to the White House and start working. Yeah, apparently and not. They're going to hang out till Monday now. now they're... I mean, it's fine. I get it, but I don't know. I think we're boring Jeff. Well, I mean, there's logistical issues to discuss. So we'll find out later today about the uh, why people were pardoned. Okay. I think it's it – it I just, don't know why either because you're like, well, they committed – like with Snowden, he said, I'm not going to pardon him. He broke the law. Right. Even though it led to you know the public, I guess you could say the greater good because now we know that you know there's huge levels of spying going on with us. Yeah. And, you know, the, but he says the end doesn't justify the means – he broke the law. Well, so did they. But he just commuted their sentence. It just seems like it flies in the face of all the other news we've heard right. about how horrible all of this is. Mm-hmm. But then we commute the sentence. I mean, I get it. It was a strong sentence. 35 years. Strongest I think they've ever given. Right. Short of death, of course, for treason. Right. <laughs> but, so we'll see. It, it's It's odd. To say it, the least, it is odd. Um, he uh, and and again, Barack Obama has really been doing a lot of this. More like three. What was it? About four to five times more th- than the other presidents. But mo- as they said, the majority of them are yeah. people who were over sentenced for minor offenses, and he's, they're just trying to correct something. It's a you got to yeah cross party. It, it was all those mandatory drug sentences yeah. that. But then there's these two that stand out. You're like, wait a second. This isn't the same. Oh, dude, that's weird. Well, okay. At least he's doing his job. You know, you got to do something. Yeah. And apparently uh, had a call with um, Donald Trump about the the, uh, Affordable Care Act. Hmm. They apparently are talking about it. Wow. Like a transfer of copyrighted material or what? (laughs) I think it's... How do you get the name? Yeah. Because Obama was sort of – they tried to use it as an insult and he just sort of 
absorbed, absorbed it. it. Yeah. Is, is Trump going to take Trump care? Is oh, that I'm gonna, sure. Everything will, want... be, everything will be branded Trump. All right. Everything. The wall will have a big Trump sign on it. Nice. It's got to be a glitter. It's got to <laughs> flash neon lights. It'll look great. Awesome. Fantastic. We will, um, in fact, be talking about the Affordable Care Act and why is it that the United States of all other nations is so slow to pick up universal health care? It's so polarized, but uh, there is some insight that, that might help us understand. Maybe it's our culture, our history. Maybe it's just the fact that we have so many lobbyists behind all of this. Stick with us, folks. We're talking Affordable uh, Care Act and universal health care up next right here on The Matt Townsend Show. A Republican-controlled House recently voted to repeal the Affordable Care Act, uh, colloquially known as Obamacare. Although the ACA was a step closer to the U.S. having universal coverage system, the United States tops is number one as a country who spends the most on health care with the worst health care outcomes. Why is this? Why does the United States not have universal health care yet? Here to speak with us today is uh, Timothy Callahan. He's an assistant professor in the Texas A&M School of Public Health in the Department of Health and Policy Management. Dr. Callahan, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me. This um, is it was a really interesting read. Your article, Three Reasons Why the U.S. Doesn't Have Universal Health Care Coverage, because, again, we, we seem so advanced in health care. We seem to have the money we need, um, and yet we are so far behind other countries when it comes to universal health care. Absolutely, yeah. When you look at it, we, we spend a lot more than other countries, and we certainly have uh, the cutting-edge technology and everything that would be associated with a great health care system. Uh, but despite this fact, there's... Uh, 28 million people without health insurance. And in addition to that, uh, we have worse health outcomes than many of those countries as well on measures like infant mortality. Wow. And it's it's such a polarized issue. Um, but I guess that might be part of the reason why we don't have uh, universal health care. Talk to us. What What is getting in the way? Uh, other countries, Australia, Great Britain, Canada, countries that we relate to, Western countries, um, they all have it. What is stopping the United States? Well, if you look at the, the literature within health policy as well as political science, uh, the, the, the literature would tell us that there's three main reasons that we don't have universal health coverage uh, in this country, despite the fact that we're one of the only advanced industrialized nations without it. And the first reason is our political culture, the, the unique political culture of America. Uh, when we think about it, the United States is more individualistic than other nations. Uh, uh, individuals in America are more likely to believe that people should pull themselves up by their own bootstraps uh, and that they should depend on themselves uh, for their needs. So in the context of health care, this implies that people in the United States believe that the government should not be the sole provider of health care and that people should get it through other means, most likely through working. Mm. Now, now, when we think about this, uh, uh, the, the polls tell us that Public support for universal health care is actually over 50 percent, but when we look at that in a comparative context, support is still much lower than for other advanced industrialized democracies. So even though the support might be there, it's certainly much lower, and health policy scholars believe that that individualistic nature uh, helps to explain that. 
And yet, and yet, we're a we're a, we're a caring country, right? We're a religious type of country. Um, yet, we we just think you should, you know, you should just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Right. Those two two ideas aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Uh, right. Of course, the United States is far more religious than than certainly many European countries, despite the fact that um, those countries believe that healthcare should be provided. And as I said, the, the polls do say that the majority of Americans do support it, but the support level is much lower. And part of that could just be the, the large nature of conservatism in the country and the idea that people in the United States believe in small government and that uh, social services shouldn't be the basis of everything. Mm. And um, so one issue then is kind of our individualism. Um, what's another uh, another important factor is the role of interest groups in American politics. Uh, when you think about it, uh, interest groups in general and the role of uh, uh, the insurance industry in particular, they are satisfied with the status quo. If we think about adding universal health coverage, the role of insurers as the primary providers of health care in the United States might change in fundamental ways. And for that reason, insurers want to maintain the status quo. Now, how do they do this? They spend large sums of money to ensure that lobbyists in Washington get in the ear of those in power. Uh, we can think back to the passage of the Affordable Care Act in 2009 and 2010, and the health sector spent over a billion dollars lobbying on the Affordable Care Act in 2009 mm. alone. And when we think about uh, the insurance sector in particular, they spent over $100 million just by themselves. Wow. A billion dollars to lobby against an idea. Exactly. Of course. Uh, it's not just lobbying against the idea. It's, it's lobbying to get what they prefer. It's, it's, it's helping to shape the legislation in a way that's beneficial to them. And part of that is certainly lobbying against ideas that are not beneficial to them. Now, and by the way, that you, and that was in one year, right? That was a billion, $1.2 billion in 2009 alone. Yes. yes. Holy just cow. Single year. So and yet yet they uh, it seems like so they lobbied hard. They created um, the ACA and yet it's not it's it's apparently not what they want because so many of these insurers are backing out. Yeah, well, when you think about insurers, what it fundamentally comes down to is the dollar line and whether or not they're losing money, breaking even or making a profit. And insurers were finding that in the context of the Affordable Care Act and the health insurance exchanges within the Affordable Care Act in particular, uh, insurers were losing money. Now, why were they losing money? They were losing money because the pool of individuals within those insurance markets were sicker than was expected. Mm. Uh, insurers thought that by including tax penalties uh, on not getting health insurance, uh, that it would force younger and healthier people to enroll for health coverage and that just didn't happen. People decided to take the small tax penalty instead. And because of that, you had a sicker, more unhealthy and costlier uh, pool of people to, uh, to insure for these insurance companies. And, and I guess the, a lot of the people that are the early adopters of um, Obamacare or ACA were those that had preexisting conditions and couldn't get insurance. So they were all jumping on, but it created a more a less healthy pool. Absolutely. If you think about it, it's, it's a simple supply and demand issue. If you're someone who has been desperate to get health insurance for years but couldn't get it because of a pre-existing condition, whether that be um, a, a level of obesity 
or, or hypertension or previously having cancer or anything like that, if that kept you out of the insurance market and suddenly you're being given a, a lifeline, you're going to take that and you're going to take it immediately. Mm. And those people were the first ones to sign up for coverage typically. Wow. So so you've kind of got that level of complexity, the fact that interest groups are, are pushing against it. I mean, I guess that could also be the medical associations, that could be hospital associations, um, as well as insurers. And then the third issue you brought up is the fact that entitlement programs are hard to, to make work. Absolutely, yeah. So the third thing I bring up in this article about the reasons we don't have universal health coverage in the U.S. is because entitlement programs within the United States are generally very difficult to enact. If we look at the, the history of social policy within the United States, large social programs are typically only enacted in very rare periods of change. So we can think about the 1930s uh, and the New Deal with FDR, and we can think about the 1960s with the Great Society as periods of transformative change. And in both of those periods, we saw large social programs enacted. Now, outside of those periods, it's very difficult to enact large social programs. Uh, part of this, quite simply, is the fact that large social programs are easier to enact when you have universal democratic control of state government. And having universal democratic control uh, hasn't been consistent throughout history, but it was certainly consistent during periods of change and in the passage of the Affordable Care Act as well. Hmm. Is it – I heard somebody years ago say – uh, it was a candidate somewhere and they said – so we all – it was when the VA was falling apart and we're all thinking, yeah, the VA, we can't even take care of our veterans. The Veterans Hospital Association has incredibly long waiting times and this is what we want to do with universal health care is put the government in charge of your health care so you can have a VA experience. And I started thinking, well, that's kind of true. I don't know that I want my health care in the hands of – a, a bureaucracy, especially a bureaucracy that's so divided and fighting against itself. Of course, there's certainly limitations uh, within the bureaucracy, and, and the VA has had a, a whole host of problems over the past several years. Uh, but if you think about Bernie Sanders, for example, he wasn't advocating that everyone would get the same care as they get at the VA. He was advocating Medicare for all. And when we think about Medicare, uh, the elderly typically are very happy with the insurance hmm. that they have. Now, it's not perfect. Uh, and there are issues related to Medicare, but uh, the Medicare system supports millions and millions and millions of our elderly and does it quite well. And the idea of potentially building on that system, which is potentially more effective than the VA system, uh, appeals to some. That's no, but that and that's I guess that's one of the issues they're they're now going to have to discuss and figure out. It's it's scary to think repeal and replace when. Um, when it is such a complicated issue and and entitlement programs have historically struggled so much. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, the Republicans, though, are sort of forcing the hand uh, by at least beginning the process of repealing. And then where it goes from there, uh, finding a replacement plan that will satisfy uh, the Republicans as well as a few Democrats is going to be very difficult to achieve. Uh, but I think the imperative of people having health insurance suddenly losing it through the repeal uh, will be a big pressure on the political system to get something done to replace it. Hmm. So it's, I guess, in the end, it, it's I, I, uh, who knows if it'll be better, but it'll be it's it is going to be played. The hand will be played. Absolutely, yeah. The the, the first steps of of the the process, the whole repeal and replace, 
uh, took place last week. Uh, last Friday, um, a budget resolution was passed in, in D.C., uh, which officially got the ball rolling on the repeal side of things. Now, this will take several weeks to uh, achieve uh, because it has to go through several different congressional committees. Uh, but the process has begun on the repeal side, uh, and then uh, Republicans believe it's just a matter of time for replace. Now, uh, when we think about this, uh, it can be quite complicated. Uh, President Obama had a supermajority uh, in the Senate, and it still took him 14 months and hmm. hundreds of different congressional hearings to get what he wanted passed. So wow. he, had, he had the perfect scenario, and it still took him 14 months. Um, yeah. But I think the Republicans are being uh, a, a bit uh, optimistic with how quickly they think they can get this done. <laughs> well, and you would know, having studied it as much as you have. Let's take a break. We're speaking with Dr. Timothy Callahan, who is an assistant professor in Texas A&M School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. His research focuses on the linkages between policy, politics, and public attitudes with emphasis on the U.S. health care system and the Affordable Care Act. We'll take a break, come back, continue the discussion of what it means going forward. Apparently, you don't just repeal and replace in a day, right? You got a lot of hearings, a lot of, a lot of uh, work you got to do to get this through even a unified Congress. Crazy town. Get ready, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about universal health care. Why does the United States not have it? Well, uh, fairly basic reasons. One, we're pretty individualistic. Two, a lot of the big companies and interest groups don't want it, so they fight and spend a lot of money to push back against it. And three, large entitlement programs are hard in general to enact. All of that according to our guest, Dr. Timothy Callahan, who is um, joining us today. He's assistant professor in the Texas A&M School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. Dr. Callahan, thank you again for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So we now are a few days away um, from one of President-elect Trump's first initiatives being to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. But when he when he does that and repeals it, um, it sounds like I keep hearing story after story about how and, and you mentioned it a little bit, how, um, it, you know, it may be just some dog grabbing the bumper of a bus. And here we go. It may not know what it's doing. Uh, yeah, well, the, when we think about health policy and the enactment of large social programs, especially health programs, uh, the, the history of trying to enact large health programs in the United States is a history of failure. Uh, if we think about presidents throughout history who have attempted large changes to our health care system, most of them fail. Uh, most recently, President Clinton uh, in the 90s. But uh, the fact that we already have this Affordable Care Act and changes need to be made to it uh, could make it more realistic. Now, President Trump or President-elect Trump, I guess, for a few more days, uh, he's vowing an insurance reform that's going to cover more people and cost less money. Hmm. Uh, and that's sort of the magic bullet that I think everyone would love. 
but a- accomplishing that would be very difficult. So when you when he goes about doing this, because like I know as a father, I like that pre-existing conditions were included, and I like that having my kids on my insurance till they're twenty six, but. If he repeals that, it seems like he's in, he will be in trouble. There's are there not a lot of people that now like having those conditions as part of their insurance program? Absolutely. When we think about it, uh, the the research in health policy tells us that individuals are actually quite supportive of many of the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. They don't like Obamacare as a whole. They like many of the individual provisions, like the ones you just said. Yeah. In fact, the ones you just said are the two most popular. And I think Donald Trump himself has even said that there are certain provisions that people like that he's going to try and save, like those key provisions. The problem areas, though, are something that definitely need to be fixed. Uh, for example, the issues with the growing costs within insurance exchanges. So I think whatever the Republicans decide to replace the Affordable Care Act with, it's going to need to accomplish uh, keeping individuals who have gained insurance insured. It's also going to need to uh, keep many of the provisions that people like, but it's going to need to to patch over uh, the problems that people see with the Affordable Care Act. Wasn't there some um, impediment created by the exchanges and that they had to be done state by state? Was 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 that part of the issue, or could you? Because it, it seems like I've heard one of the goals is also to open it up so it, so you can get insurance across state lines. Right. So one of the things uh, President-elect Trump has been uh, pushing is the idea to allow the sale of health insurance across state lines, and the idea is that when we look at these state by state marketplaces, there's not much competition. There might be two or three insurers involved instead of, you know, seven or eight, which might actually drive down prices and make prices affordable for the average American. Uh, And the idea is that by opening this up nationwide, we're going to have that competition that drives down prices. Now, accomplishing this is going to be quite difficult because some states have state exchanges that are working quite well. Some states have state exchanges that aren't working quite well. And many states have defaulted to a federal exchange Hmm as well. Uh, And when we think about going national, many different states have different insurance regulations. And the fact that states have different insurance regulations makes a national program more complex. Oh, yeah. Some of those state regulations might have to change to allow the sale of health insurance across state lines. But either way, uh, doing it could increase competition, but it could be incredibly complex from a regulatory standpoint. It seems like it would change some of the pools of coverage, wouldn't it? I mean, wouldn't a broader... I mean, if I'm going across all the states, I might have a bigger pool, a better pool, a better balance of healthy versus non? That would be the hope, right, is that, uh, that by expanding the size of the pool, you're going to increase the relative number of healthy versus sick people. But the truth is that the healthiest among us, uh, which are the young, aren't enrolling They're nationwide. Not, yeah. So it's not like there's a problem in California that doesn't exist in Utah, right? Right. It's a problem that is nationwide. So unless you fix that fundamental issue, even if you make that pool bigger, it's not necessarily going to get much healthier. Well, and it's true. You saw how hard President Obama tried to market to that younger pool. I mean, he was on every young, hip show. He was on the Between Two Ferns uh, program. He was doing everything he could to get the message to them. They just they're young, they're healthy, they, they're hip, they don't need health care. I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is, is the cost. If you're young 
and you're looking at the price of these health plans, you, you might say, well, it's easier for me from a, a life and cost perspective to take the risk that I might get sick as opposed to enrolling for this insurance. Hmm. Uh, whereas when you're a bit older, you realize that there's a great chance anything could happen in life. Life gets in the way and you might get sick or something might happen where having that health insurance is very important. Oh, yeah. And I guess you, they try mandating it and then charging you a tax if you don't do it. But that people are like, I'll pay the tax. Right. Well, in year one, that that penalty was only $95 or 1% of income, uh, which isn't a lot compared to the prices of health insurance plans. But year by year, that amount uh, is supposed to go up and has gone up. Uh, so the tax burden has become larger and larger. And potentially, at a certain point, the balance will tip and people will feel that the price from a price point, it's simpler to enroll. So in many regards, um, Donald Trump will have to solve the exact problem that President Obama was trying to fix. I think to a certain extent that's true, but I also think that anytime you have a, a large Republican majority uh, in Washington, they often delegate powers to the states. And I think there's a, a great chance we see some power get delegated to the states, and it gets left up to the states to solve some of these issues in different ways. Uh, I think this is especially likely on the Medicaid side, uh, and Medicaid is responsible for covering uh, a large number of people under the Affordable Care Act. Is well, and tell me as an expert that that is studying this, it seems like that might be smart. Let's let the states come up with, I guess, more creative local solutions that we could then implement across the other states. Is that is it going to create more, or is it going to generate more creativity in solving this problem by pushing it down to the state? Well, the states are, are, are widely understood to be the laboratories of democracy, and it, the states are often where innovation happens. And I think we've already seen on the, the side of Medicaid that some states have come up with innovative solutions for covering their uninsured. Uh, Arkansas developed its own model. So did Indiana under Mike Pence. Uh, so innovation likely would occur. The problem, though, is that sometimes states are less generous when given the opportunity. Mm. So you might have a situation where benefits are far more generous in a liberal state like Connecticut than in a very conservative state like Texas. Yeah. And then that seems like, um, boy, just another recipe for problems. But I, I guess this is this is at least creating a discussion. Um, I mean, I, I, it seems like, and you tell me, it seems like a lot of People were just frustrated by all of a sudden elevated costs for insurance. I mean, I saw companies struggling because of new mandates from the federal government for how how who they could employ, what equals uh, what is the level of full time employment, or at what point do they need to start giving benefits and, and medical benefits? Um, do, do you sense any of that chaos changing in the future, or do you sense more of it? I sense more of it in the short term, especially since we don't know what the Republican replacement plan will be. And any time a large social program is enacted, there's a period of adjustment where people have to learn, regulations need to change, uh, and companies need to adjust. So I think the fact that we're essentially resetting the clock with whatever the Republicans replace it with, there is going to be another period of turbulence. But I think the hope on all sides would be that in the end, there are more people covered at an affordable price. Uh, it just might take several years to get there. Do you, in your gut, um, do you sense it can happen? Can I mean, I, can this really happen, or is this just another promise? 
Uh, I think that the safe bet with all large social programs is, is a wait-and-see approach. Um, and the fact that the Republicans haven't released their alternative plan yet, it'd be difficult to say. Um, but I think the fact that 20 million people have gained health coverage through the ACA, and it'd be very politically challenging to take that away, oh, yeah. uh, gives me a bit of hope that they're going to enact something that will uh, hopefully provide health coverage to just as many people. Now, uh, this could push against conservative principles of smaller government, so we'll see how it all works out in the end. But I think a, a wait-and-see approach is probably best at this point. Do you think Trump would want his name attached to it? I mean, he's attached his name to everything else. It seems like <laughs> Obama tried to get rid of his name attached to this. Um, but does, does, will Trump want to go up or down with this, with this initiative? Well, you are right that he does put his name on, on, a, on a lot of stuff, but typically real estate. So I, I'm not right. sure how he'll feel uh, about a social insurance program. Um, but, but a lot of this stuff is often out of the hands of the president in charge. Uh, president Obama didn't come up with the moniker Obamacare. No. That, was, that was done by the opposition party. And I think messaging by the Democrats is going to be very important. And perhaps it becomes labeled Trump care. Perhaps it's something else. But I think it will certainly be associated with President Trump either way. Is there anything we can do um, locally in our own world, in our own life, to to lead more effectively our our healthcare decisions amidst all of this chaos? I, I think the the two things that you can do as an individual are are to first, uh, if you know someone who's uninsured and doesn't necessarily know how to go about the process of getting insured through a health insurance exchange or applying for access to Medicaid or something like that, uh, help them with that process. Uh, if, if you have that knowledge, you can help them with that process or direct them to information that will help them get that insurance. Now, the other thing you can do, and this is something anyone can do on any political issue, is if you have a thought on a topic, speak to your congressman, speak to your representative, speak to your senator, uh, write them a letter, call them, and tell them what you think. And, uh, believe it or not, representatives do pay attention to this. They track who's calling and what they're talking about and their positions on this. And if, if, if elected representatives get enough feedback on a particular side of an issue, uh, it can affect the way that they behave during the policy process. Yeah, that's, that, is, that does give hope, right? Uh, well, we appreciate you, Dr. Timothy Callahan. Thank you for your great insight on uh, the Affordable Care Act and universal health care and repeal and replace all that's going down with health care issues. Again, Timothy Callahan is an assistant professor in the Texas A&M School of Public Health in the Department of Health Policy and Management. Great resource for us all. We will take a break, my friends. Come back, continue the discussion. A lot of big things coming down uh, with the inauguration. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. Welcome back, friends. Hey, this Friday, what, what, are, you, what are you doing this Friday? Coming into work. Is that what you're going to be doing? Oh, Nine, yeah. 9.30 Eastern time, 7.30, I guess, our time, the, there will be an inauguration going on. Inaugurating the new president. And uh, some fun facts for you from past inaugurations. Now, uh, this is the famous story, William Henry Harrison 
Uh, remember, Harrison is the guy that at his inauguration on a cold, rainy day in 1841, Harrison refused to wear a hat and a coat, and he caught a cold that developed into pneumonia, and he died a month later. He died a month later. Now, since then, I guess we figured out that colds don't come from being cold. You know, colds come from viruses. And from curses. Sounds like he was cursed. Apparently he was cursed. So we hope that uh, the vice or the president-elect will be wearing a coat, maybe a hat. I think it's supposed to be warm, maybe 60 degrees. So maybe he'll just be wearing a, you know, a tube top and a some surfing shorts. Um, his 8,500-word address took about an hour and 45 minutes to read. So hopefully President uh, Trump has learned to keep it short. I think he will, because he'll be using a teleprompter. Abraham Lincoln, soon to be assassin, took part in the festivities. It was Lincoln's second inauguration in 1865, the first time African Americans participated in the inaugural parade. Concerns about Lincoln's safety lingered. His inauguration four years earlier was the first to incorporate major security measures. There was a guest in the crowd that day in 1865 who would become Lincoln's biggest threat, John Wilkes Booth. The man who shot Lincoln a month later can be seen in photos near the president as Creepy. he delivers address his address. Mm. Can you believe that? So Trump's address took an hour and 45 minutes to read. I think it only took about 30 minutes to write. Yeah. No, that was William that was William Henry Harrison's. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, Trump's hopefully Trump, he Trump's doesn't will go, go on faster, now. I think. Yeah. Hopefully. He's not as patient. It, it's the asides that'll yeah. be an issue. Where he, where he like just talks off script and uh-huh. talks about how well because you he did it the several times where he spoke of on <laughs> teleprompter and he just can't help but add something else and you wonder how many times they use the word great uh-huh. or huge tremendous well, if you watch the press conference he had a couple days ago his lawyer came out and talked about how they're going to separate his business from him and yeah yeah some, yeah and she used tremendous and great quite a few times oh, yeah. in the middle of that. And that's not usually what you put in a legal document no. or, or try to explain but when legal you're, actions when you're like his that. attorney, you have to use yeah. tremendous and great. Um, <laughs> crazy facts, fun facts from past inaugurations. We will talk uh, – we'll, we'll be doing these through the entire show. So just no. I mean as strange as it may seem, there's been weirder things at an inaugural address. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back having fun helping you see the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side, joined by Terry Self and Jeffrey Simpson. This is your inauguration coverage pretty boring because nothing's going on yet (laughs) but it will get exciting in just a bit uh we have a lot to cover today um including a woman that ate eats four pounds of sand daily you know apparently that's good for your system i guess making mud (laughs) that's all that happens right okay yeah we'll talk about that plus uh 
who is the most annoying airline type or type of airline passenger? Ooh. What is the most annoying thing that happens on an airline that the, just uh, the guy that takes his socks off and puts his feet up? That's me. That if you? you rub your feet, no one talks to you. The person that brings Thai food with them on the airplane. The, the aromatic uh, or the yeah the stinky eater. Yeah. Then there's one that just has his own aroma. That's always hard. We'll talk about it. Fun, fun insights to your travel because I know a lot of you are planning big summer trips. Nope. <laughs> You're not? Nope. I'm sorry. Don't be sad. Um, we'll get to that fun. We will also be talking with uh, Cynthia Ruiz coming up. She's the author of the book Cherokee Wisdom, 12 Lessons for Becoming a Powerful Leader that comes from her Cherokee heritage. Hmm. Cool insight. So we'll get to that fun. Um, but uh, let's first get to the news, find out what's going on around the rest of the country that we should be paying attention to. Terry, what's up? Thanks, Matt. Speaking at Davos, Switzerland on Tuesday, that's the international uh, global elite gathering together to figure out how to dice and slice up all the stuff that they own or even don't own yet and <laughs> do what they want <laughs> But they will it. own someday. Since there's eight guys that own like what? What was that number uh, yesterday? 3.5, more money than 3.5 billion humans. There you go. Sad. So great things. Trump confidant, as they call him, Anthony Scaramucci, said people don't need to run around like crazy because of Trump's controversial comments. Via CNN, he's saying uh, things that are, or the quote goes on and goes, he's saying things that are setting off alarm bells and people are setting their hair on fire and running around and they really don't need that. Relax. Play clip one. I think people are starting to get used to the communication style that the president-elect has. And I think that they will find uh, that many people find it refreshing. I think it's been very effective. Uh, he wouldn't be president if he didn't have it. Uh, and I think it's going to help us get a lot of things done on behalf of the American people, particularly the middle class people and the working class family. Yeah, so people are getting used to this communication style. It's yeah. one of the global elite's helicopters fly around the background of that clip. <laughs> Good. Good. Awesome. Moving on. So far, not a single Senate Democrat has joined the nearly 60 House Democrats in almost a third of the entire caucus who have vowed to boycott Trump swearing in. Those House Democrats have pledged solidarity with Democratic Representative John Lewis after his weekend dust-up with the president-elect. The reason Senate Democrats have not joined the protest is they represent a far broader numbers of people and don't have to be res- uh, and have to be respectable and responsive to those people. Mm. Also, um, as it says here, what was it 18 of them? Where'd the number go? They have not joined the protest. Most cases, millions of their constituents who voted for Trump. So 25 of them are up for a re-election in 2018. Yeah, so we're not going anywhere. <laughs> so they're not going to be part of that. <laughs> you can do it because you don't care. Maybe they have a district that's more right. friendly for that side of the aisle versus Republican. And, you know, so all these other issues. But it's just interesting. It knows This it is knows what makes Congress powerful because, you know, some have to placate to others and some right. don't care. In other news, Esteban Santiago, the man charged with the January 6th shooting of Florida's Fort Lauderdale Hollywood International Airport, claims he was inspired by the Islamic State and his mind was being uh, controlled by the government, an FBI agent testified Tuesday in his bond hearing. The 26-year-old Iraqi war veteran also told investigators he chatted online with Islamic extremists ahead of the shooting, which killed five people in the baggage claim area of the airport. Santiago, according to federal agents, told him that the CIA was forcing him to watch ISIS videos and complained of hearing voices. 
Uh, he was not immediately. It was not immediately clear whether Santiago was inspired by the terrorist group or if he had any connections to it. CNN noted that ISIS has not claimed any responsibilities. That he had he had reached out and gotten some uh, mental health hmm. evaluations in Alaska, I believe it was, before all this happened. So oh, might be some of that involved yeah. too. Three University of Oregon uh, football players on the Ducks football team are re- recuperating at a local hospital after a series of intense workouts last week that left one of the players with a rare serious condition, the Oregonian reports. What? Two offensive linemen and a tight end are in fair condition. One of the linemen now has rhabdomyolysis, which is a condition where muscle tissue breaks down into pieces and then enters the bloodstream, which wow. can lead to kidney failure. The injuries came just a little over a month after Willie Taggart became the new head coach. And what usually happens is the new head coach comes in, wants to you know, establish. Cracks the whip. Let's get um, working out. I'm the sheriff. You hear about these workouts where they take him into a basketball gym. They lock the doors, bring in the garbage cans, and then make the guys run until they puke. Oh, I wish but I in this could case, play football. In this case, they were doing push-ups and what's what are called burpees, where you go from a standing position, fall to the ground, and stand back up again. And you keep doing those over and over and over, and these three guys had to go to the hospital after that. Oh, man. So then the question is, how much is too much? Yeah, right? that seems like too much. And finally, President-elect Trump has not even been sworn into office yet, but he has already has an optimistic campaign slogan for his 2020 re-election. What? The reveal came uh, during his Washington Post interview over the weekend. Halfway through this interview the Washington, uh, with the Post, Trump shared a bit of news. He says, I've already decided on a slogan for re-election. He goes, are you ready? Keep America great, exclamation point. Hmm. And then he yelled for a lawyer to step in the room and told the lawyer to immediately trademark that slogan. That's in the article. I need a lawyer! He goes, send me a lawyer. And the guy steps in, yes, sir? Yes, sir, I'm a lawyer. So does that negate his previous slogan? Make America America great again? He should just say, he should just say, make America greater. So keep America great, exclamation point. Because by then he will have made it great. Right. It's all set. (sighs) Now, apparently, apparently there's a super PAC by the same name, so there might be some trademarking issue, but. Oh, I think I have a feeling he'll take care of that. Just buy him out. It'll be fine. Man, wouldn't you love just an ounce of his confidence? Just an ounce. Put it in a little perfume. Put a little dab behind your ear. With hair like that, wouldn't you have to have confidence? Oh, yeah. (laughs) You couldn't be self-confident in any way and have that. Yeah, you couldn't be like worried about, I hope I look okay. And then, right, comb your hair in the morning. You got to know. Maybe there's a staple out of place. You, you sell it. Sure. You sell it. Um, okay, so fun facts from past inaugurations. Teddy Roosevelt, do you, any of you know? He wore some unique jewelry at his inauguration in 1905. Do you know what it was? A clock on a gold chain. Probably. Not the, that's not unique. Like Flava Flav? It's not like a wall clock. It wasn't a big wall clock. No. He wore a ring containing a lock of Abraham Lincoln's hair. Wow. Did you know that? No. Cloning purposes or no, just just to keep the president close to him. Okay. Uh, Roosevelt was inspired by Lincoln. His admiration started early. There's an image of Roosevelt as a boy looking out a second story window onto Lincoln's funeral procession. And because of that, he was so moved, he wanted to wear a lock of his hair. And he did so in a ring. Makes you wonder what hair Donald Trump will have in his ring. 
People can't help but have some sort of Abraham Lincoln relic present at every inauguration. Because、yeah. now it's the Bible. Now it is. Now today, yeah, this one will be the Bible, Lincoln's Bible, plus Trump family Bible. The funny thing about the Lincoln Bible, it's been used a lot. Yes. I don't know about the Trump family Bible. I don't know. I think it looks brand new. Does it? Just right out of the plastic. Hey,、um, listen to this crazy one. You know,、um, the oath in. Okay, so the actual oath laid out in Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution is just 35 words. So when he takes the oath, he will say, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Then. When this, when this oath was given to President、uh, Washington the first time, George, or George Washington ad libbed a line、oh. that is now part of the oath. They just, instead、Whoa. of having him redo it, they just. He ad libbed the line at the very end. He added, So help me God.、Hmm. And since then, everybody has been using the line, So help me God. Pretty cool, huh? Ad lib by your first president. So, do you think Trump's going to ad lib anything? <laughs> sure. I, I actually think he will. Promise to be、Says、great. Who? <laughs> that was Scaramucci. Yeah.、Uh, that was Scaramucci. So,、um, that, that's a pretty cool story. Another one, last but not least,、uh, Andrew Jackson apparently jumped out of a White House window. Did、hmm. you hear about this? Maybe. In 1829, one of the nastiest campaigns in U.S. history had ended with Andrew Jackson winning the presidency over John Quincy Adams. The White House held an open house after Jackson's inauguration, inviting anyone to come to hang out. The problem was the White House wasn't prepared for the crowd. Accounts vary. Some say it was a wild party where furniture was destroyed and a mob of people had to be lured outside with, a, with punch. Hey, everybody, come outside for some punch. Drinks outside. Others say the riotous atmosphere was fabricated into lore by Jackson's enemies. No one disputes the number of people at the party was insane. Jackson had to get out of the place, so he really did escape through a White House window. Wow.、Um, so, did he really escape through the window, or did his staff quietly escort him from the property? Depends on which story you believe. Some say that he had to jump out the window. Wow. See? He was kind of an、uh, interesting guy. So maybe he had a crazy party. You've、yeah. never had to jump out the window to get away from some crazy house guests? No, just my home teachers. Oh, I see.、Uh, anyway,、um, whose line is it anyway? Some very famous lines have come from inaugurations. You, I'll give you the line. You tell me who said it. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Do you guys know? Yes. Franklin. Mm-hmm. Delano Roosevelt.、Mm-hmm. 1933 inauguration. I knew it. This will be easy. Ask not what your country、Kennedy. can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. John F. Kennedy, 1961. You couldn't was, have done was, it in his accent. Was it somebody else's quote? I don't think so. Really? I think he、okay. said. I think he. No, meaning I think he said it, but I think he took it from somebody else. Oh, I don't know. Well,、no. tell that to the Kennedy family. Right. <laughs> you just made them mad.、Uh, our long national nightmare is over. Obama said that about George W. Bush. No. And it, and it won't be the next president saying it.、Mm. I mean, they might be saying it.、Uh, Gerald Ford, referring to Watergate. 
Hmm. Government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Hmm. Who is known as the king of um, conservatism, anti-government? Ronald Reagan. Mm. Anyway, there you go. Now that you're ready for the inauguration, life is good. Unless you're a ticket scalper. What's going on with tickets? Guy here uh, talking to the New York Daily News. He bought a pair of tickets for $700, thinking he could flip them for at least twice as much because, you know, people are excited. Oh, yeah. Tons of money. He, uh, yeah. So he took them and he posted them on several websites and his Facebook. I don't know if you can scalp a ticket to a presidential event. He's not getting any, any hits back. He tried to put them up on, like, you know, Facebook, no hits. Uh, he went to a Second Amendment activist like post posting message board to see if he could push him there. <laughs> Maybe they there. Won. No, he said after receiving no interest, he visited a handful of white supremacist websites. Oh boy! Said nah, there's nothing, no interest there. He he posted them. Uh, let's see. He he looked on Craigslist because he thought maybe maybe my price is too high. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you're just out of the market. And the tickets are ranging from one seventy hundred seventy five dollars to four hundred per ticket. He bought it for seven hundred dollars. He was trying to get more. So he asked me too much. <laughs> so he posted them on a community bulletin board at his office. Somebody said, "I'll give you two hundred for the pair." So he's going to lose a lot of money on these tickets. Wow. But one anecdotal situation. Yeah. But it could be widespread across the ticket scalping industry (laughs) for the inauguration. Well, again, maybe Trump won't be great for the economy. He's bad for For ticket scalpers scalpers lately. That's sad. I just love how he's like, well, we'll try Facebook. Eh, Let's go white supremacist. (laughs) (laughs) That's so sad. It's so, yeah. Let's go to TMZ. Yeah. Let's go, yeah. Where do you end with him? I don't know. Um, okay, fun stuff. We'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, wisdom, Cherokee wisdom, and uh, how to be a strong leader from a guest who uh, is drawing on her Cherokee history and culture and wisdom. Interesting leadership ideas ahead. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. In her book, uh, Cherokee Wisdom, 12 Lessons for Becoming a Powerful Leader, leadership expert Cynthia M. Ruiz taps into her Cherokee roots to share profound advice on developing your unique leadership style. Cynthia believes that everyone is different, yet has the ability to be a powerful leader in many aspects of their life. She's on the phone with us today um, to share with us some of her 12 lessons from her book and uh, see if we can't all pick up our leadership game a little bit. Cynthia Ruiz, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? Great. Great to have you on the show. And uh, now, is it true, Cynthia, you're not just an author and a professor, but you serve as an L.A. City Commissioner? I do. So I'm an L.A. City Commissioner overseeing their retirement fund, which today is about a $15 billion portfolio. Man, alive! <laughs> that is a big responsibility. You better you better be living your your uh, your word here. Talk to us about Cherokee wisdom, and so did you 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 have a really diverse background anyway, um, and 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 now live in L.A. too, a very diverse town as well. Talk about what you learned from growing up and your your ancestors, your history. 
Well, what I learned basically in the book, Cherokee Wisdom, 12 Lessons for Becoming a Powerful Leader, are what we consider 12 attributes of leadership. And so the 12 attributes of leadership are basically the Cherokee cultural values. I know that every culture has similar values, but what we feel a good leader will have these qualities. And for example, number one, integrity. Have integrity in all you do. Now, what we define integrity as being is doing the right thing even if no one else is looking. Mm -hmm. It's easy to do the right thing when other people are looking, but when nobody else is looking, you know, do the right thing. Have integrity. Man, that's a... It's it's so needed in our world today, and it's so needed, I think, in our especially in our even our political world. How do you see? I mean, that's got to be hard because it's cutthroat. I'm assuming in LA politics and in life, and you see people that'll just shave off a little bit of integrity in order to maybe get some longevity in their career. Absolutely, but as a good leader, you're not going to be worried about what other people are going to be doing or not doing. You're doing what you want to do. And this book really came out of, um, you mentioned I'm an L.A. City Commissioner, but previously for the City of Los Angeles, I was president of the Board of Public Works, which, mean, which meant I ran the Public Works Department 5,000 people. Wow. So that's the L.A. City's infrastructure, the sewers, the streets, building, fire stations. So when you're in that situation and making the difficult decisions every day, what I did is I turned within and realized that if I made decisions based on my core values, I would never make a bad decision for me. doesn't mean everybody was happy with my decision, but I could make the decisions and sleep at night. Yeah. And then, I I mean, too, the the reason that's so connected to leadership is we want to follow somebody that has has integrity, right? We want to follow somebody that at least has a code they believe in. Oh, absolutely. And at the end of the day, if you don't act with integrity, it comes out sooner or later. Yeah, it does. In uglier ways, I'm assuming. What are some other principles you, you, uh, you teach? Respectful and acknowledgement. Be respectful of others. The bottom line is that each and every one of us are here on this earth having our individual journey, and it doesn't make it, or, you know, my journey right and yours wrong. Everybody's different. So respect other people's opinions. You know, we don't always have to agree on everything. Sometimes we just get to a point where we agree to disagree, and I respect your opinion. I don't have to force my opinion on you. So respect is very important. Oh, yeah. Do you... Um, I, I, for example, this whole we've been talking about Trump's inauguration and so many people are, I guess, respectfully declining to go. Some are not so respectfully declining to attend. But then I saw Hillary Clinton will be going and I saw Bill Clinton will be going. And it almost if anybody has a right or a reason to not go, it would be them. And yet um, it, to me, it just says so much about her 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 leadership that she's willing to respectfully uh, acknowledge this transfer of power. What I mean, but that's that's so hard in this partisan world. How do you balance partisanship and respect? Well, I my interpretation of that is that it's out of she may disagree with our president elect, but it's out of respect for the position, right? Because at the end of the day, as being a you know citizen of the United States, I respect that position. 
and irregardless of who's holding it or if I agree or disagree, it's the bottom line is, you know, that's still the president and that's the person that's in charge. So, you know, a lot of people are struggling right now, but they, at the end of the day, I believe that this has also energized a lot of people. Mm-hmm. You know, in politics, people were getting very apathetic, but now a lot of people have been energized, and at the end of the day, this is a government for the people, and the people have to have their voice heard to to actually implement policy that um, they're going to agree with. So, you know, it's gotten a lot of people involved, so that's a good thing. Oh, yeah, and it also sounds like... Um it, 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 we could we could keep them more involved if we if we showed more integrity and if we also showed more respect and acknowledgement of other people's views. Right, and what I've seen in Los Angeles, one of the challenges that we've had in politics is that we have term limits, and you know, term limits it's a good thing, and but it's also a bad thing because a lot of the politicians they're not really focusing on their job at hand. They're worried about the next position, where they're going hmm. next, and they don't want to upset people because they're going to ask them for money. So when I was president of Public Works, it was hard to really engage our city council members because I was talking about 20-year plans, 30-year plans, and they didn't necessarily want to hear what was going to happen in 30 years because they wouldn't be in office. They wanted ribbon, ribbon cuttings and things that they could celebrate today. So that hmm. was a challenge. Oh, that's true. In fact, and we've talked about the term limits in California, and it. Um, I mean, I guess it it changes the game, doesn't it? Because you're constantly you have to, you're almost thinking about your future, your career, instead of kind of a long term ability to make things happen. Exactly, and it turned into musical chairs, and then you have a new dynamic in Los Angeles where you have a lot of state legislatures that are termed out of the state, and they come down to the city, which is very the city at the city level. It's very constituent driven. People want quality of life. They want their potholes fixed. There's tree trim, the lights on. Very different than state level, which is almost exclusively policy. Yeah. Oh, that's true, huh? And um, I mean, in pensions and longer term kind of things. Talk about. Uh, did you learn this growing up? I mean, these these the Cherokee wisdom. I'm assuming it was handed down from your family to family member, and you saw it in your life. How did you receive this, this, these insights from your family? Do you remember specific examples? Yes, it's basically you know how we were taught growing up. And one of the things I can remember being taught is that even if you're a leader and have a lot of responsibility, you know, stay humble. Confidence and humility are not mutually exclusive. You can have both because a lot of people think to be a leader, you have to be very boisterous and you have to, you know, be very, um, you know, almost rude sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, no, I believe you can get a lot more with sugar than you do with vinegar. So um, humility is something that's always been important to me. And I've had very prestigious jobs or job titles, let me say, but it doesn't define who I am as a person. I still take all of these traits with me to every job that I do. Wow. And it's, um, did you think you were going to be this politically involved, this, this involved? Did you always sense you'd be a leader like that? Well, I always, from very early on in high school and college, I was always elected to, you know, student government. So I was always an activist for the people or the people around me and wanted to make a positive difference. But I think that I also learned that with leadership comes responsibility. 
Right. And you have you have a responsibility, and many of us lead by example and don't even realize it in our daily lives. I mean, you know, you're you have a family. You're the leader of your family, and your children watch what you do. And you know, good or bad, they're going to watch you and and mimic you. So we all have positions of leadership with our family, with our friends, our social group, our churches, our work. So, you know, to me it's if you're working with certain values in mind on a daily basis, that you don't have to worry about how having a negative impact on others. Mm. And it's – I I think that's it, right? Because you you can just kind of go by your core and your code and know that you'll make it through. You'll make it through whatever you're going to face that day. And we're seeing this more and more in the business world. I mean, you have, we have terms like social entrepreneurship that didn't exist 20 years ago. So more corporations are developing a social conscious, and a lot of that, in my opinion, is being led by the millennials. Mm-hmm. The millennials want to make sure when they spend their dollars, their dollars are going to be spent on companies that do have a social conscious are doing giving to the community or environment or what have you yeah i think that's i think you're right on and it's um it also it's funny because you your your diversity doesn't end with just being a a native american you also have you're a latina and you have this very interesting mix um do you how do you notice those bridge together inside of your history and your current leadership well, as you mentioned, I come from dual cultures. I'm half Mexican. My dad was Mexican. I say was because he's made his transition. And then on my mom's side, we're Cherokee. So what I like to say, I get my passion for life and my love for music and dance from being Latina. And then I get my spirituality and love for the environment from my native side. Hmm. And so the good thing in L.A., it's so diverse. And, and so I'm able to really embrace both cultures and I think it's really taught me a lot of lessons. So when I've been in, in very powerful positions, it's really you know helped me get through because I have to admit, when I was president of Public Works, that's a predominantly male, yeah. female, uh, male, male or yeah, yeah, um, industry. So there'd be many times where I would be you know the only woman in the room. They're out of thirty people, but I was the boss. Mm-hmm. So it made me work that much harder. It made me be that much more prepared when I came to meetings because I knew everybody was looking at me. So I really had to lead and say, okay, I'm going to be a good leader. I'm going to be informed. I'm going to be intelligent, and I'm going to make the best decisions I'm capable of making. Yeah, and and it sounds like you had kind of this inborn confidence um, of who you were just because you've been learning about your culture and your I mean, your identity. And like you said earlier, your identity is bigger than anything. I mean, it's it's bigger than it's more based on these attributes that you learned of Cherokee wisdom than it is on any gender or ethnicity or anything like that. Exactly. And that, you know, I know that you're a relationship and a communication specialist. Yeah. So I actually my first book was called Finding Sane Relationships in a Crazy World. Mm. And I know that sounds like a relationship book, but in my opinion, I believe one of the most important relationships you can have in your life is with yourself. Yeah. And making sure that you clean out all that emotional baggage. Because as we grow up, we develop this emotional baggage as anger, resentment, shame, guilt, insecurities. So once we work through that and we're happy and healthier, we're going to have healthier relationships in our lives. 
Oh, so true. And and then you can maximize once you're kind of good with you and your higher power, then you can maximize uh, your your impact and, and power with others. Powerful stuff. We're, we're speaking with Cynthia Ruiz, author of the book Cherokee Wisdom, 12 Lessons for Becoming a Powerful Leader, also author of the book Finding Sane Relationships in a Crazy World. We'll come back and continue the discussion on leadership and uh, power with people. Interesting example of uh, how, how we can really find ourselves and then change the world. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Cynthia Ruiz. She currently serves as an L.A. City commissioner overseeing the multi-billion dollar pension portfolio for city employees. She's also an author, professor, and inspirational uh, speaker, a leadership expert. She's the author of the book Cherokee Wisdom, 12 Lessons for Becoming a Powerful Leader. And uh, we are honored to have you on the show. Thank you, Cynthia, for being with us. Thank you, Matt. And one thing I wanted to acknowledge you for is really having that positive voice in the world. Because right now people are bombarded with a lot of negativity and craziness. So thank you for being that positive voice. It's so oh, important. Thank you, Cynthia. That's that's uh, that's kind of the goal, right? We there's too much negativity, and I, I found that like like you said, you can get so much more with sugar than vinegar, and we. Um, it's almost like we don't we don't know the skills. We don't know as as you were talking about the these kind of life lessons, the attributes that uh that get us through life. Life is tough and it's too easy I think to just keep following the negative line. Um talk about some more lessons that come from Cherokee wisdom and being a powerful leader. Well, communication. To be a powerful leader, you have to be able to communicate. And that sounds so basic and so simple, but communication is complicated these days, especially with the different generations in the workplace. Um, The millennials really communicate through technology. The good news is technology has connected the world. Mm. The bad news is technology has affected the way we communicate. I was recently leading a workshop for women business owners, and one of the millennials said, well, then my boss doesn't appreciate me and my skills. And I said, well, have you sat down with your boss and discussed what your skills are? And she looked at me like surprised. She goes, <laughs> sat down with my boss. And she goes, like, well, how do you communicate with your boss? She goes, well, I email her. And I said, well, it really is important to meet with your boss because we know from our experiences in meetings, there's not only the verbal communication there's the nonverbal communication. There's all the nuances in the way we communicate that you can only get from having a one-on-one meeting versus a text message or email that's one-sided and so brief. So communication is so important. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. And it's – don't you think – because one of the problems I found with communication is we assume we do it, right, because we have a, we have a mouth – and we we think we know how to do it, 
But there are – I mean there's some bosses that would rather have you communicate via text and some would rather have you in their face um, and yet you, you, no matter how you choose to communicate will impact kind of the level of communication that transpires. And so it's it's almost like you need to know multiple styles to talk but you also need to be able to figure out how to how to get people that don't want to do it via – or face-to-face – how how to get them okay and safe to do it cuz you're so right we miss so much of the message when we don't right and we know there's different ways to communicate but if you're leading a team say if you're at work and you're leading a team you know it's important to articulate the expectations to the team mm. they don't just you know you can't just assume they know what right. needs to be done this is the goal this is how we're going to get there this is the accountability and we keep checking in every little while to make sure we're on track until we reach that goal. And then I usually do a debrief to, to talk about it. So, you know, the communication on all different levels is such an important, you know, a skill as a leader. How did you, as a leader, um, when you were in the organization, was it the, was it the transportation department? Public Works. Public Works Department. How did you end up getting men on board and... I mean, because that's a major leadership skill, and you had to have done the very thing you're talking about, communicated your expectations. But they they also probably had some doubt uh, of why you were there, why you. Um, How did you get them on board and get them to buy in? Well, I have a type of leadership style that, say, if I am in a meeting with 30 people and we have a task at hand, I am very, you know, social-oriented, so I'll go around the table and ask everybody their opinion. And then once I get all that input, I'm not afraid to make the tough decisions. Hmm. I want to hear people out. But as a leader, you can't only just let everybody decide. You have to decide as well. So there would be many times i say, okay, I've heard everybody out. This is my decision. And they would look at me and like, well, we've never done that way, (laughs) done it that way before. And I said, I understand that. Try it my way, and if it doesn't work, we'll go back to your way. That's great. And and, 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 and you heard their voice, so their voice is, is part of the discussion. And I saw the look on their face like, are you crazy? We can't do it that way. Yeah, we, but I, <laughs> we don't do it that way here in, in the public works department. But I guess that's part of it too, huh, is changing and being willing to adapt. And, you know, you, you would have been – you probably would have gone back if, if it didn't work, but you had confidence in your ability to pull it off. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing we can be sure of in life is there's going to be change, and, and the big companies that survive are the ones that adapt. Mm. Talk about your uh, – because you mentioned this idea of um, kind of our leadership, our personal leadership style. How How do I go about figuring out my style? How should anybody – especially maybe a younger person that isn't quite sure of their own style, how do we better understand our our approach to this and to leadership? Well, in my humble opinion, leadership is not an exact science because human behavior is not an exact science. Hmm. Each and every one of us are different. So what I recommend is really there's over 5,000 books written on leadership. I recommend that if you want to be a leader – you know, look at good leaders that you want to be like. One of the things that I love is TED Talks. Yeah, I love you those. Know, right? So they have a lot of, they have a whole leadership um, 
episode. So I love to watch TED Talks. I love to read. I love to, you know, hear CDs and really gather as much information and then follow your inner voice and you'll know what's right for you. As a leader, I actually change my styles. As you know, I'm a professor. So I could be teaching the same content to different class based on the group dynamics. I may change a little bit. So just be fluid and be confident and know that, you know, as long as you're making your decisions based on your core values, it'll be good for you. Yeah. No, I think that's great. And um, and follow your inner voice. There's something about in, your conscience, your sense of right and wrong, this guidance from a higher power that is also a part of our lives. Did you, did you – was that a big part of your growing up? Was that instilled in you from your elders and your parents? Absolutely. Because uh, as Native American, I use the term creator, but I also say God. I say higher power, universal consciousness. To me, it doesn't matter what term you use. The fact that you are aware that there is a higher power that we're all connected to, that you have the ability to tap into, is so important. So every day I do three things. I start off with my gratitude list, I pray, and I meditate. And that really keeps me connected and grounded, and I've always had that in my life, and it's become stronger as I become more mature, but it's really, you know, gives me a sense of security and a sense of of ease that I know that I'm doing the right thing. Mm. It's... um I oh I think that's powerful too. I mean you've been you've been on videos uh and um with the Dalai Lama and in other scenarios there's something about a calmness of a Mother Teresa or a a Gandhi or a Dalai Lama somebody that's connected to a higher source it just brings a peace that makes it makes it easier to just follow them. Right and in Cherokee wisdom we believe in harmony and balance. And we also believe when we make decisions that we have to look at our decisions holistically. What I mean by that is when um, you make decisions, you're supposed to look seven generations before you and seven generations in the future. Mm. So you're looking at when you make these tough decisions, how does it impact the whole, not just your individual self, but society and trying to make society a better place. Boy, and I, I, I've heard that before. I didn't know that that was Cherokee, but that that concept of projecting your life seven generations, it seems like we can have a big debate about, um, you know, about environmental science. But mm. take the science <laughs> aside and let's just talk about seven generations from now. What will this decision be? What what does you know whatever more, uh, you know more coal, more whatever, seven generations from now, what will it be doing for us? And it seems like you can cut through certain concepts of science just by thinking about everything. If, if I how, – how you treat the people you're working with um, as you're working and, and managing the portfolio and the pension for city employees, if you're making that decision based on seven generations from now, that's – you're going to make different and better decisions it seems like. Absolutely, because what happens is that so many times people, we live in an instant gratification society. So people want things now and are not really to, not willing to make the long-term investment. And, you know, you talked about the whole energy thing. 
I live in sunny Southern California. I don't know. I can't understand why we're not more solar based. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, I mean, here, you know, the sun shines all the time. And why aren't we using that energy source to power our need, our power needs, energy needs? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of questions. But, you know, as we both know, change takes time and yeah. it happens slowly. And one of the dynamics we're seeing in leadership is having more women in leadership roles as more and more women enter the workforce. And um, women tend to lead by social power, and men lead by individual or personal power. One's not better than the other, it's just different. So as you see more women coming into the workplace, you are going to see leadership start to make changes over a period of time. Mm. As uh, as we wrap up, Cynthia, what would you say – I always ask for the one thing, the one thing that makes the biggest difference. If there's one thing we should do today that would most dramatically impact our ability to be a powerful leader and, and influence our relationships and people around us, what's, what is that one thing? Believe that anything is possible. Anything is possible as long as you believe it's possible. Do the work and never give up. That's great. Great stuff. Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Great insights uh, from a wonderful leader, Cynthia Ruiz. Go check out her website, uh, CynthiaMRuiz.com, where you can get information about all that she's doing there and her work as well as as the L.A. City Commissioner overseeing the uh, pension and portfolio for the city employees. Leaders, folks, isn't it powerful to just have people that just good people? That's that's what we want to bring you. Help you see the good in the world. And uh, you can see it in Cynthia. You can see it in the cultures she comes from. There's power in this diversity. And it's not a slogan. It's real life energy and power. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue to show you the good. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. Hey, you know, it's getting cold outside, and many of you are uh, seeing more and more snow and cold weather in your area of late. One of the setbacks of winter is icy roads and foggy windshields, which can cause safety hazards for drivers. So to keep everyone safe this season, one of our producers, Leanna Tan, is going to give us some safety tips for the snowy weather. I'm not sure where you all are listening from, but I'm here in Utah where we got plenty of snow for the holidays. I was thinking about a couple of weeks ago when my sister and I were driving home in the middle of the night. The roads were completely white and slippery, and the white dotted lines were nowhere to be found. So we ended up cruising down the highway at 30 miles per hour in the very center of the road. On the freeway? That's the saddest story I've ever heard. It got me thinking. This time of year can get pretty dangerous. Get alone. Minding my business And can call for some pretty unorthodox safety measures So, in order to keep you all safe and sound this winter season I researched sites like AAA.com To bring you five safety hacks for driving in the snow this winter Make your trunk into a cat box Minus the cat and the box Pretty much you just need to haul around some kitty litter Sounds insane, I know. Mommy, why does that car smell funny? Don't worry, it's not going to attract all your stray neighborhood cats, but it will help you when you get stuck in a rut or a slippery slope and need some traction. 
Just sprinkle some of that kitty litter behind your wheels and let physics do the rest. Break the law. Okay, not really. But remember that driving standards may change based on weather conditions. So if it's a blizzard out there or the roads are caked with ice, it's okay to go below the speed limit and even enjoy the freedom of running a red light. Sometimes it's more dangerous to try to screech to a halt at a yellow light than let your car glide through the intersection even if the light turns red. When times get hard, swipe the car. Contrary to my philosophy for everyday living, I do believe in whipping out that credit card when you're stuck with an icy windshield. A quality ice scraper might run you $47.50. But not to make any purchases or call a pizza delivery. If you don't have a windshield scraper with you, though, a credit card or driver's license or a library card works well enough to at least help you see out your window. Channel your inner 80s fan. In times of distress, bright colors and neon fashion faux pas are your friend. If you get stuck in a snowbank, it can be hard for rescuers to find you in a blanket of white. So, grab a bright colored cloth or shoelace or aerobic sweatband and tie it to your antenna so they can get you out of there. And I'm sure if you blasted that Cindy Lauper CD you have tucked away in the glove compartment, they'd find you in no time. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Time after time. Look out below. As important as it is to get the snow off the top of your car and clear your windshields and keep everything nice and warm inside, don't forget to check below your car and make sure that the exhaust pipe isn't clogged with snow, ice, or mud. Or else, it could cause carbon monoxide to leak into the passenger compartment when your engine is running. And that could be deadly. So please, this winter, take precaution. No one is exempt. That is, unless you already have a neon-colored cat box with heated windshields as a car, then of course, you'll be fine. But still, at least remember to check the exhaust pipe. Well, happy driving, everyone. I'm Liana Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the program. We've had fun for two hours. We've got one more ahead. And this is this one's locked and loaded. And in a weird way, we will... Be having fun about a very difficult issue. All right, we have an author that will be talking about his book, Cancer is Funny. Which that, some that's would say what my mom always said. Doesn't seem like it's that funny. But this guy uh, was suffering from cancer and um, also is a, um, he's a pastor. Mm-hmm. And he realizes there's some things in life that you just got to laugh about. So we will be uh, talking to him about his book, Cancer is Funny. Also uh, celebrating, of course, Kevin Costner's birthday. If you build it, he will come. Okay, thank you, Kevin. Kevin Costner, 62 years old. I mean, he was just a heartthrob. I'm still waiting for that Waterworld sequel. Why? Why not? I saw it as a kid, so it was awesome. Did you love it as a kid? You yeah. must have loved swimming. See, I, I hated swimming, and I always <laughs> I felt like I was drowning through the whole thing. 
Do you also hate webbed feet? Yes, that freaks me out a bit. Mm. Nothing that that makes me feel inferior. <laughs> Man, Jimmy, your feet are sure webbed. That's why you're on the swim team. Um, we'll be talking about that. Uh, the uh, the cancer is funny. Celebrating Kevin Costner's birthday, of course. Also, um, we must get to the story about the woman that ate four pounds of sand daily. Traction. <laughs> just trying to get some traction. We just heard before about kitty litter when you're stuck in the snow. You can have kitty litter in yeah. your trunk and maybe sand has the same effect. By the way, yeah. I mean a, a little kitty litter goes a long way. Right. So if you use some sand. So my mom used to say – we didn't have cats or anything. Yeah. No, your mom's a very, very wise woman. Plus, uh, of course, um, also coming up, annoying passenger uh, rankings. So what are the most annoying things to have on an airplane? You would think it would be a crying baby. No, it's not. Oh, wow. There are more annoying things than a crying baby. Like? That's what my mom used to say. This is really weird. (laughs) Yeah. Your mom, very wise we got to have her on the show. She listens to it pretty Does much she? every day. Mm-hmm. We ought to – let's call her up. Let's talk to her. I want to hear some dirt about you, Jeffrey. Um, we'll get to that fun. But first, Terry, to the headlines, what's going on around the rest of the country? The United States should not allow a delegation from, from Taiwan to attend the U.S. President-elect Donald Trump's inauguration, so says China's foreign ministry raising a new bone of contention in Beijing relations with the incoming government. A Taiwan delegation led by the former premier and a Taiwan national security advisor and some lawmakers will attend Friday's inauguration. Taiwan's foreign ministry reported that this week. Wow. China's not happy. They feel like you're recognizing Taiwan. Apparently we should acknowledge that they even exist. Yeah, this is It's crazy. typical for Taiwan to send a delegation to U.S. presidential inaugurations. This isn't new. Apparently, it's something we're going to send out press releases and stomp our feet around. Um, Ongoing, I think these are happening now. Wilbur Ross, President-elect Donald Trump's Commerce Secretary nominee, has a hand in uh, sending an estimated – he had a hand in estimated 2,700 jobs being sent overseas since 2004, right? What? He's the new Commerce Secretary. Yeah. So this is coming out in the hearings? The uh, Reuters did some uh, looked into some documents and oh found boy. some evidence that he was outsourcing some jobs. As sure, he was, but but his supporters say that happened as he was saving all these other jobs. Yeah, right. So it's, yeah, well, I mean, which you, you lose twenty five hundred, you gain five hundred. Right. So that'll likely come up in his Senate confirmation hearing slated for later today. Okay. Uh, Representative uh, Tom Price of Georgia goes before the Senate Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions as he has been nominated to lead the Department of Health and Human Services. This isn't an official confirmation hearing that comes later before the Senate Finance Committee, but with outspoken senators such as Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on the committee today. Hmm. It should be kind of interesting this to see what they say. Crazy. He is... Uh, Certain to face tough questions, as it says. Also, uh, Governor Nikki Price from yes. South Carolina. She's the uh, appointed UN. Uh, uh, Nikki is it Nikki? Not Price. Nikki. Nikki uh, not Price. Yeah, what's her name? Nikki Haley. Haley. Sorry, Nikki Haley. She Price is the other yeah. guy here. Nikki Haley. She's going to be the ambassador to the UN. Uh huh. Her confirmation hearings are going on today. She'll also. shoot right through. Phew. People like her. Uh, during uh, her confirmation hearing on Tuesday, Betsy DeVos, 
She's the education secretary. The education appointment from Donald Trump. Uh, she cited grizzly bears as the reason for the federal government not to take action against guns in schools. Duh. She uh, believed regulation for firearms and educational institutions should be left to the states and localities. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, whose state saw the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012, mm. uh, pressed her on uh, whether she can say definitely today that guns shouldn't be in schools. And she responded that in Wyoming, I'd imagine there's a gun in the school to protect from potential grizzly bears. Great point. And everybody went, where did that come from? <laughs> well, she apparently was at some meeting and talking to a Wyoming senator who said they they put up wildlife fences. Right, to protect. Because they've had some uh, We've done stories of a, like a deer running through or a bear right. running through, yeah. So they put up some wildlife fences. They do yeah. some sprays. So and, she doesn't want to have a federal mandate that says you can't. Yeah. Yeah, let the states decide. Yeah, but she just out of the blue yeah. talks about grizzly bears and <laughs> when guns. in doubt, bring up a grizzly bear. And the senators went, "What? What, what about you, the bears? What are you talking about?" Um, finally, Entertainment Tonight reported on Tuesday that the NFL told Super Bowl halftime singer Lady Gaga, yeah, that she should not say anything or bring anything up about the election or mentioning Donald Trump during her performance. Now, the NFL is saying that story was false and that the singer was given no kind of instructions in that way. They said the Super Bowl is a time for people to come together. Lady Gaga is focused on putting on an amazing show for fans, and we love working with her on it. We aren't going to be distracted by this, said the NFL. Hmm. Lady Gaga was an ardent supporter of Hillary Clinton. Yeah. What I take from that story is a warning that Lady Gaga is doing the halftime show. That right there, I didn't even realize. Adjust your viewing. Can I just suggest they they probably ought to worry more about less about her political statement and more about her dress. It'll just be that meat suit she wore several years ago. Because what if she's been talking to ja- Jackson? What was the Jackson? Janet Jackson. Janet Jackson. Justin Timberlake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a fiasco. Many called it a snafu. <laughs> it was. I'm not sure A wardrobe snafu. Yeah. Well, okay. Interesting. Lady Gaga. Yeah. They're, they're saying the reporter says it was mentioned. The NFL saying we don't know. We didn't. No politics. But the NFL really, is like we've never said a this word about is it. Not, this is not the Golden Globes. No. This is – in fact, this is the NFL where Meryl Streep made fun of yes. these people that watch athletes. Cause that and what, the, ultimate fighting? Yeah, They're not the arts. arts. They're, They're not, not the, the real arts. Right. So she, she might not want to say anything. But a lot more people will watch the Super Bowl than the Golden Globes or Oscars combined, I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Plus – the dresses are a lot different. True. Let's focus on the dress. Just saying. Hey, do uh, you guys fly much? Uh, no. But if you were to fly someday. Um, <laughs> I do on occasion. Yeah, you do. Now, you're talking about most annoying. Of, most annoying passengers. I saw a video a couple weeks ago. Guy is sitting there, and he just records on his phone, and then later added captions like, what is going on? Why is this happening? Yeah. The guy across the aisle took off his shoes. And some people do that. Oh, yeah. They oh, take yeah. off their shoes, but he took off his shoes, took off his socks, put his, shoe, his foot up on his on his leg, on his knee, and then you know, massaged his foot, got in between the toes. Worked those corns. Worked it all. And so the smell was just, uh, yeah. The person was really uh, offended. Okay. Well, I'd rather have the Thai food. Yeah. What so, in fact, okay, so let's get to that. Uh, the, I'll give you the top ten in a second. Most aggravating passengers okay. by category. But uh, the ones that, were, that didn't make the top ten, number 14, the single and ready to mingle. 
Well, gotcha. Yeah, I want to flirt. Gotcha. Yeah, no, that's annoying. <laughs> I don't know why that reminds me of Jeffrey. Because you're married. I'm married. But I'm thinking back in the day. Um, I didn't look for love on uh, at 5,000 or 10, however yeah, many 40, thousand 000, feet. 40,000 uh, The amorous, those are the, that's, yeah. that was number 12. Yeah, 13 the... was the mad bladder. Ooh. Those are hard. Yeah, you're always getting up mm. and running around. Excuse me. Yeah. That's just shooting right through me. Uh, number 11, I think, is the one you're talking about yeah. uh, with the undresser. Oof. Keep your clothes on. Number 10 are the pungent foodies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, when they're bringing on some really nasty, hey, I'm having fish. <laughs> Good. Uh, number 9, the armrest hog. Most annoying. Aggravating <sighs> passengers. Number 8, the seat back guy. Mm. Always has to have a seat back. Right in the middle of your – when you're sending your email and it pretty much closes your laptop on your hands. Uh, number seven, the queue jumper, mm. the, the guy that just sneaks in line ahead of you of the bathroom or whatever. Number six, the chatty Kathy. Forty percent of people rank the chatty Kathy or I guess Carrie. It could be you know either gender. Like make some Usually pleasant com- conversation, but at some point you can stop talking. Yeah, just – yeah. You don't have to talk the That's entire That's when flight. you start taking your shoes off. Yeah. Uh, number five, the boozer. Ooh. Not Carlos Boozer. The other Boozer, once they're getting drunk, yeah. then you know, you know, the air marshal's coming out. <laughs> uh, number four, the audio insensitive. Too loud on the headphones. Mm-hmm. You can hear their headphones a mile yeah. away. Uh, number three, the, aromo- the, the aromatic passenger. Take a shower before you fly. Yeah, there's some mm-hmm. that just, we're, but it's stressful. We're sharing our air here. Come on. Airports are stressful. Yeah. Uh, number th- uh, two, the inattentive parents. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Your kids run wild. And you're like, oh, it's cute, but I just want to punch you, yeah. little kid. And the number one most aggravating passenger on an airplane this year, the rear seat kicker. Yeah. Really? Bam, See, bam, 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 I'm surprised bam. that the one that's not on there is the person that is a little big and probably should have purchased two seats. The double buckler. Yes. In a single buckle. I've been in the middle of one of those rows where I sat next to him, or I sat on a man, or he sat on me, Yeah, who really should have purchased two seats. But you know what? You, you can't discriminate. Or can you? If he's, if he's sitting on you, it seems like a hazard. <laughs> but... I sat between two. Really? Two, two individuals. Both oh, sides. No. I was in the middle. I'm just like, I'm yeah. not moving this entire flight. Like, literally, I couldn't move my arms. Do you have a picture just... of that? No, because you'd have to somehow. But you know that that were... was on your flight to China, right? No. Where was I going? Denver. Yeah, can you imagine a really long flight? But you know what? It used to be a lot worse because back in the day, people could smoke. So you would actually oh. sit behind smokers. <laughs> oh, man. And it would, you know, it would get you irritated. And then if you had your arm on the armrest and they tried to extinguish their cigarette in the little <laughs> arm. Oh, that's, that's my yeah. rest. That's my wrist, sir. Hey, did you hear about this elderly woman? Kuzma Vati, a 78-year-old woman from India, had a very unusual diet, which apparently has kept her healthy over, over the years. Her diet consists of eating four pounds of sand and gravel daily. Roughage. More than roughage. <laughs> <laughs> Some audio. Oh, nice. Of lunch. Seems like she's processing those rocks well. She has enjoyed this diet for over six decades. Well, it's good for birds. They eat rocks. Kuzma has said that she loves eating sand and doesn't see any harm to doing so. 
Apparently, it's made her body tougher. Well, yeah. She hasn't visited a doctor during that entire time. Tough like rocks. <laughs> Grandma, you tough like rocks. <laughs> you tough like rocks. <laughs> didn't Rocky eat sand? If he didn't, you know his his coach did. Rocky, it's over, Rock. <laughs> Come have some sand. You want a sand smoothie? Anyway, her family has been wanting to get her medical assistance because of this weird addiction, but she refuses. Hmm. Now, by the way, she's 78 years old. Yeah. I think at 78, you're allowed to eat whatever you want. Yeah. If it hasn't killed her by now, I mean, really, it probably gets rid of a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or she's got like... It's like Drano for humans. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. No. I hate going to the beach just because I hate sand on my body. Yeah. Let alone putting four pounds a day in my in my gut. Oof. Anyway, crazy news there. Also, um, Detroit man gets a $128 ticket for heating up a car in his own driveway. Yeah. There's a lot of laws around the country that way now. Apparently, you can't idle your car in your driveway. Taylor Truppiano. Says he's still shaking his head over a parking ticket he got on his own property. Hmm. So can you can you warm your car up in your garage? No, it's the warming the car up. But so I guess what you ought to do though is shut the garage door, warm the car right. up. That's probably not the best and then advice pass at all. out. <laughs> I don't know where Taylor went. He said he was just warming the car up. That's scary. He said he was only out there about seven to eight minutes, and the police came by, gave him a hundred and twenty eight dollar fine. That's in Michigan, by the way. Pollution's bad. Yeah. They did it without him noticing. They were just in and out. Just in and out. Good stuff. Well, we're sorry, Mr. Truppiano, but you are not allowed to idle your car for seven to eight minutes. Idle cars cause yeah, or call for the idle, devil's playground. Idle, idle cars are the, devil's ad, are the devil's playground. I think devil's advocate was right. I think I saw that on a pillow. A pillar. Anyway, crazy, crazy life. We're, we will take a break, folks. When we come back, we're talking about Cancer is Funny. It's a book out by our next guest who who is suffering with cancer. And uh, we'll find out uh, what makes it so funny. If you or anyone you know has ever had cancer, you probably realize it is not a laughing matter. In fact, it's probably the least humorous thing you could think of, right? But what if laughter is just the cure? Jason Micheli, a 37-year-old pastor and author of the book Cancer is Funny, says after eight cycles of nine chemo drugs, I believe laughter is still the best medicine. Jason joins us today from Virginia to discuss his experience battling the disease and giving us a little insight into what is so funny about cancer. Jason, thanks for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. This is uh, – I loved your website, by the way, tamedcynic.org. It's um, – <laughs> So, I mean, you're a pastor. Uh, you're a, you are you work with your congregations, and yet, and then all of a sudden, you're suffering cancer, and you were able to find the funny in cancer. How, how did how is cancer funny? Uh, well, I guess I should say that it wasn't funny initially at the time, <laughs> um, right? Yeah, no. I uh, so I was in the pulpit one Sunday, and then the next Sunday, I was I was whisked away from my congregation. Um, um, 
Yeah, and after a few weeks of kind of really strong abdominal pains, I went to a GI doctor. He sent me for a CAT scan. I was told I'd hear something, you know, the following week. And then that evening, I'm getting a call from him asking me if I'm sitting down. Oh boy. Um, and so, but I even and even in that kind con- that conversation, I, I remember him telling me that the pain was caused by my uh, intestine invaginating in on itself. Ooh. My, my preteen son was sitting next to me, and he he was uh, he was like vaginate. We learned about that in Family Life. Yeah, Dad, that didn't. We're not supposed to use that word, <laughs> isn't that? But uh, how how terrif- terrifying! Oh, it was yeah. So even there, like I'm I'm terrified. Like I'm thinking about how what am I going to say when I call my wife in a few minutes, and I'm crying, um, but I'm also laughing with my son. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, so I I had surgery the next morning. Um, and I woke up from that to find out I had one of five rare cancers and they were waiting to find out which one. Mm. Um, and so that began a, a year of really intense chemo for something called mantle cell lymphoma, which is this really rare cancer that it usually affects only really old men. Oh boy. Um, and is, is in- incurable. Um, but because I'm a pastor, I interact uh, with a lot of people with cancer, and then I noticed a lot of people having reactions uh, to my news as well. And then I think that was really the first time I, I realized how much unresolved grief people carry around with them uh, from someone they they love having cancer, or maybe their own. Maybe so that's it, because huh? yeah, we don't know I mean, what to do with it. So I guess we just keep carrying it. Yeah, I, I, I mean the way I like to think about it is, uh, you know. With this cancer, I rip scabs off of people, mm-hmm. um, and so that that was the sense that I got that I would just provoke sadness or anger, uh, you know, just uh, these untapped emotions. And so I decided to to write about it because um, part of what part of how I understand my job as a pastor is to model what it is to to follow Jesus. Um, you know, in, in front of this community of people. And so I figured this is one of the most significant things that's ever happened to me, and to hide it would seem inappropriate. See, um, you, yeah, you're so paradoxical is because I, I've been watching some of your stuff on your site, and you, you're you in a way irreverent, but, but very um, spiritual. And it's powerful because you say what more normally people don't say, but you get people very real very quickly. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, and I think we all know this, but I see see the other side of it in my job a lot. That cliches and platitudes do do a lot of damage to people. Um, I think emotionally, and particularly, you know, with their faith too. And so, um, to so I saw the challenge as you know, how do I narrate this without stained glass language? And to do it is honestly like could possibly do that. And sometimes that means it would be off color. Sometimes that means I'll. I'll be asking questions that maybe people would find threatening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and other times it means, that, you know, it'll be positive and affirming too. But, um, but you know, my, my overall premise in the book, uh, Cancer is Funny, is that um, I, I quickly discovered that everyone assumes the experience of suffering leads you to wisdom or enlightenment or to God. Um, but I, my, one of my kind of fundamental beliefs is that God is joy. Um, yeah. You know, at the, at the heart of God is joy, and so if it's true that suffering leads you closer to God, then at some point that suffering has to yield to to joy and laughter. 
Um, and so I, I tried to I tried to look for the joyous and, and, and the funny uh, as I went through this experience. And were you able, I mean, because that's, that's a great point that a lot of times when cancer is more about the terror, the fear, the unknown, the anger, the coping strategies. Um, but yeah, we don't see the joy even when we believe in a God. Yeah, I mean, it's part of it is just that, um, you know, it's gallows humor, right? I mean, yeah. I've, I've done enough. I've done <laughs> enough burials and funerals where I've seen, you know, absolute bone racking grief give way to laughter um, at a moment's notice, and then go right back into tears. Um, and so there's there's something about I think being vulnerable um, that leads people to either you know being open to their emotions, and I think sometimes that can be can be grief, sometimes that can be it can be laughter. Um, and, and and I think too, you know, on the cancer award, there's a whole lot of gallows humor that, oh. that, that, that comes your way too. In fact, tell us some. There, you you talk about the absurdity of chemo. Yeah, it's well. I, I mean, so I mean, you know, you, you get the news that you know, unless you take these drugs, you're likely going to be dead soon. Um, and then you know, sitting in the hospital googling these medicines, and I find out that you know most of them are derived from you know. Gas warfare in World War One and Two, um, and you know, and the, one of the side effects of chemo is <laughs> it causes cancer. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, does it have that on the bag as they hang the chemo? Do you read this may cause cancer? It's a yeah, carcinogen. I mean, it is. Yeah, people like they, the nurses will bring you the bag, and you have to read your name and your social security number to make sure that you're actually the person they're giving it to. And you know, like, there's the warning right there on the on the bag that says may cause cancer or leukemia. Oh my god! Um, so it's it's it, it's hard to not just that's just so absurd. It's it's hard not to laugh. Um, <laughs> Do you point that out every treatment? Do you yell it out to everybody? Hey guys, it, it, careful! <laughs> yeah, there's something like that. I mean, it, it's just. It's a crazy, it's a, it's a crazy experience, and it's, it, it, it would be inappropriate if I didn't point out that um, when I say cancer is funny, what I mean is that my cancer, yeah, you know, was funny, and that I think it's, it's all well and good to, to find, you know, where is God in this situation for me, but to impose that on someone else is, is something that I is one of the reasons I'm writing the book is that I don't think people should do that. Yeah, don't force it. Yeah, don't force yeah. your belief on another. Yeah, everyone's experience is their own, and and to to not feel the need to protect God in such a way that you're imposing a, a narrative on other people. Yeah, because people go into the battle right, and um, and then they start questioning. I'm sure seriously, where is God right in the midst of this major trial? And you don't, yeah. you shouldn't be telling somebody, you know, don't talk that way. Oh, no, and it's, I mean, one of my, I mean, you know, theologically, I've always been against the idea that God does X, Y, and Z um, to people for a reason, um, but I've never had that conviction. Um, and I didn't go into my own cancer thinking, you know, this is happening, like God is doing this to me because of X or Y. Um, but there's something about the grief process that is such that even if you don't rationally hold that as a belief, you still get to the point. I mean, I still got to the point where I, I was really low, um, and you know, I'm like, God, why, why are you doing this to me? Um, and so there's there's something existential that's that's unavoidable about asking that. Um, that I think everyone it comes to everyone at some point. Yeah, 
Do you sense you got closer to God? Did did it bring you closer to God? Because um, here you are, a professional clergy, um, and, and and yet you had to battle the battle of all battles, really. It, well, I mean, there's a couple of ways to answer that. I think one answer is that um, kind of towards the end of the book, I, I talk about the story of Daniel in the lion's den, or not the, I'm sorry, Daniel um, and his friends in the, in the fire. Um, and the, the traditional reading of that story is that God is there with him in the fire. And so I, and I wonder in that story if, um, well, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like, do they know that they have someone there in the fire with them, or hmm. is it only the people looking upon them as they struggle in the fire? Oh, interesting, can, yeah. They can see the fourth character. Were they informed? Um, yeah. Yeah, and so part part of me was, um, I went through a lot of periods where I wasn't sure that God was with me, um, and that in those situations, what it meant to have faith was uh, to trust the testimony of the people close to me, telling me that God was with me. Um, and so, so if faith is trust, and in that instance, I had to trust what they were telling me. Yeah. Um, so and, it's and it's use them. You you, you were able to use their faith. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then on another level too, like I mean, part of the reason I wrote about my experience was like, you know, all of a sudden my life got really real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I wanted to see, like, all right, well, does this language of the faith actually do the work when things get real? Um, and so my faith is stronger now in hindsight, I think, because I have the confidence uh, that these stories and this language that we use to, to narrate our experience of God, it actually does work. Um, and it can steward you through um, terrible suffering. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then you, in the midst of the suffering, it seems like paradoxically you then go from a faith moment, almost a faith crisis then believing in someone else's faith to get you through it. And the next thing you're doing is you're talking, you're naming your tumor Larry. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like those two, those two juxtaposed to each other probably, you know, create a pretty magical moment. Yeah. Larry, Larry, the invaginator is how we, we is that what you called family. your cancer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was about eleven by eleven. Uh, is what he, they pulled out of me, and, and I was like, "Wow, that's just like a baby." Yeah, um, that's a big baby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, it's oh, that's great. Well, uh, let's take a break and come back. Really, we're learning um, from Jason Michele, um about his cancer and his book, "Cancer Is Funny." Go check out his website, tamedcynic.org. Really, I think, powerful uh, journey through life and cancer, as well as um, other realities of sometimes the harshness of Christianity along with the, the love that can come when, when, when you find a, a, a pure vision of what your beliefs are. Stick with us, folks. Interesting stuff. Helping you see the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us is Jason Michelle Lee, and he is a, a, a United Methodist Church ordained elder. Uh, he studied at theology at the University of Virginia and also Princeton, and uh, is the author of the book, Why Cancer is Funny. Go to his website, tamedcynic.org, or you can find him on his Twitter handle, at Jason Michelle Lee. Um, Jason, thanks again for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. Do you think it's harder to be a pastor with cancer than just a parishioner? Oh. Because everyone looked to you to be the source of strength, and now you've been handed this really hard thing. Um, on the one hand, I, I think it's probably harder because, you know, I'm I'm doing cancer in a fishbowl. Mm. Um, and trying to do it in a way that was truthful but didn't uh, puncture anyone's faith yeah. at the same time, you know, because part, part, part of what I do is, is uh, I mean, there's a lot of swear words in my book. There's a lot of um, kind of, you know, questions that, you know, Real. are off limits to yeah. people. Um, and so, so I think on the one hand, it was hard because the way I was doing it might have been threatening or upsetting to some people. Um, but on the other hand, I, I mean, one of the things I like to say is that Christians don't have an explanation, uh, for evil and suffering in the world. What we have is a community of care. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and that was true for me that I, I, I have, I had what too many people with cancer don't have. And that, that's a community of people to care for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have, I still have so many people's like casserole dishes that I haven't returned. Uh, I mean, so are, I mean, they drove me to chemo. They held me, you know, while yeah. I was throwing up. They caught me when I was passing out. They played with my kids when I wasn't able to. Um, so, so on the one hand, I, I had a great gift that uh, too many people don't have. Mm. Does your family share um, your humor? Because, I mean, I could see how this could get you through it. I, I think I might be similar if I were going through a, a similar experience. But I don't know that my my wife would always appreciate it. Yeah, I, I, I think your wife and my wife would probably get along well. Because <laughs> um, it's also true that, I mean, one of the ways that we use humor, I think, as, as you know, creatures is to deflect. Yeah. Um, and and to keep ourselves from being vulnerable and um and I grew up in a family of addiction and divorce and and I think sarcasm and humor are definitely coping mechanisms that I developed early on as a result um and so I'm aware that I also do humor as a way of protecting myself yeah, escape yeah and th- and that that form of humor in particular is not a good practice in a marriage, particularly when a stressor like cancer is mm. bearing down on the marriage. Yeah. Um, how did you? So, so yeah. How did you handle the vulnerability of it all? <laughs> I guess humor. <laughs> I yeah, I guess you have to because really, it's so you're it's so ignoble. They just now you're this specimen. You're this thing to be poked and prodded, and everyone now is talking about your weakness. Oh yeah, I mean it was. I mean when I. <sighs> my first bout in the hospital, you know, and so the nurse brings in like a handful of nursing students to remove my catheter. And oh. I was like, well, I, 
I guess we're doing this now. Hello, so, ladies. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's not uh, something I would choose, but I, I'm I'm strapped to this bed, so there's nothing I can uh, do about it. Unbelievable. Um, I guess laugh. I mean, yeah. it becomes a new punchline. It becomes a new lesson. Yeah, I mean, it, not, it knocks you down to the point where, like, you have you you have. I mean, all your vulnerabilities are are, are exposed, and all of your defenses are knocked down, and and. You know, I, and all that leaves you with is your your honest emotions, and some of that's sadness, and and, and some of it's just humor. Hmm. Man, did it um, did did it change how you preach, uh, and and just how you pastor and care for your people, um, <laughs> and minister? Yeah. It, <laughs> One result is every time I go to see someone in the hospital now, they they have to tell me, "Well, it's nothing like what you went through." And I'm like, oh, "Well, no, you're, you're dying. That this is a legitimate <laughs> experience." Um, so, so it has changed how people interact with me. But um, I've had people tell me, I don't know whether it's I can assess it, um, that I preach now like someone who's running out of time. Hmm. And. And I, I had a number of people tell me that, and so I, I have to trust that that's probably true. Um, that I, I do have a, a renewed sense of urgency where, where, when it comes to church, that we're not just kind of play acting. Are you more bold now? So you say, are you more willing to say it? Say what yeah. needs to be said, and I think I'm more bold, and I'm more confident that the the core core of the message is what's important. And so I, I feel less need to decorate it with other things to get people's attention. Mm. Wow. I wish we could have that without that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, it's because really to have that kind of that, that confidence yet that, that serious sense of let's get real, folks. Yeah. I mean, we, we all forget that like, I mean – we talk about Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus, but we forget, you know, like, wow, he was like, you know, blind and bedridden for quite a while. Yeah, <laughs> um, right. That maybe there's there's a necessary part of that um, because we are also defensive. Um, maybe we, I mean, maybe, maybe, and that's, you know, I mean, I think it's Flannery O'Connor, like in her short stories, talks about, you know, how the act of God's grace in the world was always experienced by us as a kind of violence, and and maybe. Maybe we do need to be knocked down mm. in a physical, violent way to, to get our attention. Yeah, to catch the clue. Um, and I wish we had more time. As we wrap up, what would you tell everyone else? I mean, if you, if you have – what's the message that we can all take away from your experience um, to really – to be less defensive and to be you know, more believing and loving even? I, I think um, what I like to tell people is that, you know, for Christians at least, you know, what we believe is that when God showed up in the flesh, we did the worst possible thing to God, and God responds with Easter. Um, and so to never feel the need to protect God, but to, to go through the life God's given you as honestly uh, with your feelings and your thoughts and your questions as you can, um, because if you do that, you'll invite and give that kind of permission to someone who's going through something terrible, yeah. whether you know that you're giving that permission or not. Yeah. Man, thanks, Jason. Keep up the great work. We'll keep listening to you as well. Jason Michelle Lee, go check out his website, uh, tamedcynic.org. Uh, lessons, right? Lessons from cancer. 
and an ordained elder. I mean, what a test. What a test. And a great sign of the good in the world. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. A forbidden love. Dancing with decadence. I look at the sun and it says, Je touche le bleu. Indulgence. Stilton. I am gold. I am gold. I swim in the Caspian Sea. The shells sparkling, smooth to the touch. Je suis amoureux de la pizza. Don't hate me because I'm pizza. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Let's throw it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show today. I think it's Spencer and Jason. Hello, gentlemen. Hello, Matthew. Hello. I'm so distracted by the commercial that <laughs> we that a, just listened to. Is that a perfume pizza. commercial? It's a perfume commercial. Uh, they're making perfume out of pizza. Mm. I just hear decadence, <laughs> indulgence. Yes. yes. And then all of a sudden, pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it beautiful? <laughs> Tell it's, me, does anything smell better than just a little pepperoni behind your ear? Uh, you know, I haven't had pepperoni behind my ear, so I'm going to have to try that out you and let you know. Give it a try and then ask the boys okay. what they think. Okay. All right. <laughs> Jason's licking his chops. I'm, I now want pizza. That's all I'm thinking about right now. And just I've got another pizza. hour and 10 minutes before I can get it. Oh, I'm sorry to do that to you guys. So, so sorry. Hey, question for you. What you do you think? It. Do you think um, Lady Gaga is going to go all Gaga over uh, anti-Trump? Talk? I hope not. I, I don't. Just, I want to enjoy the halftime. Just give me the music. Yes, just so sing. I, I, you know what? Everybody's got their opinion on it. That's fine. Everybody's entitled to their own opinion. But that's not the time. Just give me the halftime show. That's all. I can, that's all you're being paid to do is entertain. Mm. Great point. Bigger problem. Tell me the bigger problem. Uh, wardrobe malfunction with Lady Gaga or she brings up Trump. Ooh. Bigger problem. I think the wardrobe malfunction would be a bigger problem. I think you're right. I think everybody's kind of numb to the other. Yeah, they're kind of anticipating that something like that will happen. Yeah. So They will kill her mics. Shock factor not quite there as it would be with a wardrobe malfunction. Yeah. Great, great point. <laughs> great point. Um, did you guys hear the story about Raiders rookie Carl Joseph buying his uh, mom a dream house? No. no, that's fantastic. Isn't that and cool? We probably should have heard about it because Ben Bagley is the biggest Raiders fan that I know. So yeah. maybe he'll tell us about it later. Talk to Ben about it later. He bought his mom her dream home with a pool, all mm-hmm. of that, because he loves her. And he promised her, I think when he was like eight years old or in eighth grade or something, that he was going to buy her a house like that. Wow. And he did it. You know what? As a, as a child, to be able to do that for a parent who has oh. given and done everything for you, what an awesome feeling but it is to, cool. to repay that. Yeah. Yeah. No, like handing over. He said he, he could hardly wait to hand her the keys and just know that she's covered for life. 
Uh, would both of you guys do that for your parents if you could afford to do if it? If I had the money? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I would do that. Absolutely. Well, what did you guys do for your parents when you signed the big BYU Sports Nation deal? Um, I asked them to take me out to dinner. I, I promised them <laughs> that I could maybe get them a few tickets uh, in the upper bowl to maybe see a game or yeah. two. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> That was really good of you guys. That's super generous, yeah. right? That was really good. Possibly get you some nosebleed seats, Mom and Dad. But it's because I love you. Uh, yeah, I got my mom a gingerbread house. See, so you outdid us. And we built it together. It was really okay. cool. It's like, here's the house, I promised. Yeah. Just something I'd do. Do you want gumdrops, Mom? Yeah, put those on. Yeah. <laughs> it's really sweet. Hey, you guys still doing your show today? We are doing our show, and trust me, oh. it is a very unique, entertaining show. <laughs> really? Not only is it show number 900 even, Matt, Holy cow. in the history of BYUSN, we have Jonathan Tabernari on the show, and at one time, he compared himself to Christmas. He's special because he comes only once a year. Okay? <laughs> so that's, that's just a start. That's what great. Other, what other interview can you tune in today to hear him compare himself to Christmas, talk about potty training as it pertains <gasps> to BYU basketball? Oh, wow. That's mm-hmm. great. Also, uh, the iniquity of the Lamanites. <laughs> wow. <laughs> The pride wow. cycle is discussed in comparing that to impatient BYU it's fans. It's all in one interview. <laughs> Holy cow. I'm not sure the pride cycle's ever been brought up. I mean, the pride it's, cycle of the Nephite nation. It's so... Uh, you just, he's one of a kind, man. That Great. is classic. So you've got him on the show. Who else? Yes. And Jeff Judkins. Holy he made Juddy. a bucket list dream come true for one of his former players who has been diagnosed with cancer, emotional... Very cool stuff. Oh, wow. Uh, Just, we're inside the locker room for crying out loud. The moment he tells her that this said bucket list item is coming true, you you got to see He's got the biggest heart ever. Judkins is incredible. He's so cool. And and he he made it clear he wanted some BYU Sports Nation karma. He's like, look, I need to be on the show. I need the karma. (laughs) That, he really said that? Yes. Oh my hell. Well, don't you feel the car- you're on no, the show I feel every the karma day. every I mean, day. Technically the no. show has a star show is right. having sustained no. success, oh, Matt. Absolutely. They've they were trying to fire me four times already. Why do you think ratings are peaking out exactly. of the roof during the last 15 minutes? I know. Of your show? I know. <laughs> I know. We go like we just boom right right now in fact. There's there a spike right around 9:50. <laughs> we just don't understand what's I going on. I don't know what it is. Oh, that's a cool show, guys. Anything yeah. else then we're you're excited. just going to hug it out and be done. Big Probably. deal, no deal. Yeah, big deal, no deal. It's, it's a fun show. It's a good show. Good show. show. And Je Suis Pizza, you guys get, are, are they one of your sponsors or are they just on my show? I swim in the Caspian Sea. <laughs> <laughs> See, you have listened. You love it. I thought it was a joke. No. I thought it was something you were doing on purpose the first time. Like, oh no. man, this is a commercial. <laughs> no, it's a commercial. It's one of our sponsors. We have a lot of sponsors. Decadence. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys, I'm going to get you some of that pizza. Okay. That, some of that perfume, I mean. Please sorry. do that. Yes. Okay, have a killer show. Knock them dead. Love you, man. Good Thank luck you. with Jonathan Tabinari. That's a big deal. Bye-bye. Boy, that's um, that's a fun guest. He's going to get a little religious on you, plus, you know, connect back to his his Christmas metaphor. Hey, by the way, yes, huh? that was actually a commercial for uh, that $2,000 pizza. Oh, that's right. So it wasn't a perfume. Oh, it's, it's a pizza. It's actually pizza. Yeah, that's it's funny. Sound, I, they're, they're, it's, it doesn't, it's a common mistake. People think it's a perfume commercial. But it comes from the Caspian Sea. 
Oh, well, the, the caviar the, does. The caviar does. Yeah. Yeah. And the gold came from somewhere else. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Yeah. Hey, uh, check this out. And, you know, we've been telling cons for years to be careful when they're robbing a bank. A man entered a San Diego bank on May 13th and demanded money from a teller saying, hey, you're being robbed. Don't make a mistake. He's probably kicking himself over his own gaff, however, which uh, helped send him to prison for three years and uh, ten months as part of a plea deal. Before he made his demands, the robber had swiped his debit card at the teller window. Duh! Which made it easy for the police to track him down, according to reports. You can't use your teller card. You can't use it at the teller. How many times? Have we told people this? What would have been worse is if he swapped, if he swiped it after he handed them the note. Yeah, I can get you that money. Could you go ahead and swipe your uh, debit card for well, me? Well, absolutely. Uh, sorry, sorry, sir. That didn't go through. Can you swipe that again for us? You know what? We've told people over and over and over that you got to be careful, and nobody seems to listen to us. And I don't know why. I don't know why. We can't make it more clear than that. And I think he tried to be compliant. You know how that bank manager came out and said, if you want to rob our bank, you've got to apply, you've got to abide by these rules. Right, right. I think he was even trying to be compliant. Yeah. It's, you know, it didn't what? work. No. What do you do? What on earth are you supposed to do? Hey, another uh, story that you, you got to pay attention to. Um, and again, not an easy story, but a deputy said a man stole work tools and then accidentally called his boss. Authorities say a man stole tools from his workplace at an auto repair shop. Then he accidentally called his boss as he tried to sell them. Citing an arrest report, the owner of the repair shop in West Virginia told deputies that one of his employees recently called him about tools he was selling. (laughs) Hey, this is Jimmy. I'm just trying to sell a whatever, a power wrench. What do they call those? Anyway. Uh, the owner said the employee, power wrench. What do they call them? A power power drill? No, the power where you take the lug nuts off. Let's go with power wrench. Power wrench. The owner said the employee immediately hung up after he realized who he had called. Oh, geez, that's my boss. Deputies say they recovered the stolen tools after they obtained a search warrant and searched his vehicle in his home. Thirty-seven-year-old Sean Nelson Ferner. Done. Done. Okay, my friends, Hero of the Day. It's a simple story. It's a story we just talked about. My Hero of the Day for the Matt Townsend Show is Raiders, Oakland Raiders rookie Carl Joseph, who buys a dream house for his mother. Oakland Raiders safety, Carl Joseph, made the NFL dream come true, and now he's doing the same for his mother. He had a, he had a goal when he was eight years old. Yeah, no, sorry, in eighth grade, telling her that I would buy her dream house someday. Definitely one of my most fulfilling moments in my life, he says. Sometimes she hates the way she raised me, but she loved what she raised. She can't. He can't wait uh, to hand her the keys to the house and basically knows that she'll have nothing to say. So he's the hero of the day because, you know what, it's easy maybe to, to use your talent to make it rich and to get big and to forget people. But if you're going to forget somebody, don't ever let it be your mom, your dad, the parents that made it all happen for you. So a little challenge to us all. Let's go call our moms today. Let's go take care of our family and the people we love. And just know that they've loved us for a long time before, you know, before you made it big. That's the show. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more information to help you live longer, love stronger. Check us out on iTunes, on TuneIn, or just go to BYURadio.org. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. We'll talk again tomorrow.